Psychology in Seattle. So, Berto, do you know Lance Armstrong? You know who that is? I do. Cyclist. He was my hero. He was. Well, I mean, one of my heroes. Interesting. Many heroes. Interesting. But I just, I always admired him so much because he had beat cancer. He was like this ridiculous, out of the norm athlete, won all these Tour de France's and it was just crazy, you know? And he seemed like a great inspiration. Is France near France? Yeah, it's near France. See, now you know what it feels like to get one of those jokes. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Your Honda. host? Your host? I'm a therapist, I'm a, and I'm a professor, and uh, only 1% of the jokes on, the, on this podcast, uh, the bad ones, are by me. Uh, <laughs> who are you, Umberto? My name is Liza Minnelli, and uh, I'm actually a lawn scare professional. All right, so this episode is for patron Maite, who has requested this episode for, oh. I believe, years. Honestly. We met patron Maite here in Seattle at least once. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I'm going to briefly uh, sum up uh, Lance Armstrong's life, and then we'll get into more of the details. Yeah. Um, so he's by far the most, uh, wouldn't you say, the most famous American cyclist ever. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I can't think of a, another American. I'm cyclist. sure if you're into the sport, well, totally. you, you, but in general, like he's in, the guy. In fact, I can't name any other cyclist. I could name at least five others, but I'm not going to. Really? I didn't know you're in it. Every no, once I'm in a kidding. while. I'm kidding. Uh, oh, I'm bluffing. You can't name another yeah, cyclist. You would have said like name one. And I'm like, I don't want to right now. I see. You know? I should have played you just, along. Yeah. You just believed me. Um, <laughs> you should right. never believe me. Right. So, uh, Lance Armstrong is, you know, he, whatever he did, not only in cycling, but also just marketing his brand, so to speak, yeah. uh, made him and his story of, of getting cancer and, and recovering. Um, so, yeah. And people loved him. I think that's one thing that we might forget, given his bad press in the last few years. People loved him. Do you remember that? Oh, time? yeah. No, I mean... It was like, first of all, anyone loves a story of a successful athlete, you know, in general, people love successful athletes. But then there was this additional thing of like, and then he got cancer, and then he beat the cancer, and he came back and won again. It's like, how could you, you know? Well, there was that, which obviously was a massive, well, we'll get into it. Um, He was beloved. He was beloved, yeah. I think for a lot of reasons, which, which we'll get into. He was in movie cameos. Do you know what movies he cameoed in? I do remember seeing him, but now I don't remember what. He was in Dodgeball in 2004. Yeah, right. He was, and and some others, but he was also, uh, there was also a movie made about him called The Program, a biopic, which we'll get into in a second. And he was also in Tour de Pharmacy in in 2017. That sounds like a winner. Uh, appearing as himself, uh, a parody of um, blah blah blah. But anyway. wait, wait, and the whole thing was like he was the main actor. No, oh, okay. he was he was a cameo of himself. Oh, wait know. a minute, is that what I think it is about? Like Tour de Pharmacy, like talking about all the drugs in the Tour de France. Yeah, yeah, in the France. Well, I don't know if it was that. Anyway, essentially okay. in cycling, maybe is the. By the way, side note, um, we've talked about this before. Remember how in the eighties. They used blue screens in movies, like in Superman and stuff like that. Yeah. Which, by the way, that would have been bad because you had a blue suit too. But uh, right now I have a blue screen. <clears throat> and then when grease, green screens came out, uh, people were like, oh, yeah, it's a green screen. And I, I had this debate one time when I was like, well, 
you know, like a blue screen. And they're like, don't you mean a green screen? And I'm like, well, sure, but, you know, they used to be blue screens. And they wouldn't believe me. Like, absolutely, they were blue screens. And I remember watching the TV special where they were showing how they did the flying scenes in Superman, and they talked about the blue screens. I see. But, like, no one believed me. So, for those who are just listening to this in their ear holes, we are actually recording video of this episode for YouTube. Right. So, then when I did my prop here with the blue screen. Yeah, I don't recommend. It flies over their heads. 99% of people are probably just in their ear holes. In fact... Some people, even on YouTube, might only be listening to this because they don't want to watch our faces. So no one can see what I'm doing right now. So he started Live Strong, which is the uh, charity for cancer awareness and, and research. And did you, and have, the bra- did you have the bracelet? Uh, I don't think so. But I've, I've been to that website many, 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 many times throughout the years because they have a lot of useful nutritional information and hmm things like that, health information. He raised a lot of money for uh, cancer research and awareness. How much money do you think he raised? Wow. Um, $50 million. Ten times that, $500 million. Jeepers. Yeah. What? Yeah. So Half a billion. To put this in, well, I, don't, I can't really put it in perspective, uh, you know, with numbers, wow. but a lot of celebrities and sports figures will have a charity that they are a part of or or even run themselves or you know they found yeah and and yeah they can raise a lot of money but half a billion million. half a billion dollars is unheard of for any charity there's so many charities out there and so that is i that, did not know that that reflects number. How That's incredible. Not only how much everyone loved him, but how adept that he or his team are at marketing what yeah. they're doing. Because uh, a lot of, actually, uh, there's probably, you know, hundreds of celebrities who have cancer-related uh, charities. Right. And you don't hear about them. You don't see their bracelets everywhere the way you did with Livestrong. But a lot of those, they're actually trying to give people cancer. So those don't, they don't have the same pull, let's just say. Uh, but as maybe some people don't know, he was accused of using performance enhancing drugs. Uh, do you know when the accusation started with him? Wasn't it like 2008? It was 10 years earlier than that. Really? Yeah. They, they were, that was surprising to me was the accusation started in the late nineties. No way. Pretty much at the beginning of his, of his career. Yeah. So some people kind of knew or were in on the accusations and just the general public didn't hear about it till 10 years later. Uh, I don't know when the general public would have heard about it necessarily, but. Well, I mean like me, I'm a general public kind of person. I don't follow cyclism, cyclism. Clearly I don't follow cyclism, <laughs> but I remember hearing about it around that time, 2008 or 2000, you know, Cyclism is when you are <laughs> essentially like prejudiced against another person's brand of, of bicycle. Yes. Like, oh, you have a Schwinn. Oh, specialist? Oh, please. Yeah. Um, we just named the two bikes that we know. We don't know any others. Uh, well, Mongoose, I remember as a kid. Mongoose. I had a Mongoose. Yeah. Mongoose was badass. Diamondback. I'm just naming like REI. Isn't BMS. that a brand? <laughs> uh, yeah, he denied it the whole time adamantly. He was a, 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 he was in hundreds of press uh, situations denying right. it. And, and by the way, for me, like I have this weird thing about uh, performance enhancing drugs. Like, first of all, I, I I understand the problem, right? Like, 
if a, if a certain percentage of athletes are just trying to compete as non-enhanced human beings, and then some other percentage goes ahead and enhances themselves, and they happen to win, I understand the problem. It's uh, I get it. At the same time, what really I think upset me and probably a lot of people is how angry he was denying it and how he went after the accusers and all these things. Right. We'll get into that too as well. So, uh, and it should be pointed out that from my observation, most people believed him that he was innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And wanted to, I mean, I wanted to believe. I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. No Uh, one would deny, like, no one would write a book called If I Did It, If They Did It. Yeah. 2012, he was found guilty of using performance-enhancing drugs uh, in his career. Oh, that was 12. Okay. 2012. And he was stripped of all of his titles. Yeah, right. And then a year later, 2013, he finally admitted it on what show? Uh, The dude, the the dude with the mustache kind of balding. Nope, Oprah. Oprah? Oh, yeah. It's a... Very famous Lance okay. Armstrong. Is that the one where he jumps? He says he's super happy and jumps up on the couch. And exactly. Okay. Then everyone hated him. Yeah. We went from persona non grata, loving him to ha hating him, and people are diagnosing him with you know that he's a narcissistic personality disorder, right. a psychopath, which we will get into. We will diagnose from afar. Yeah. With a ton of caveats. By the way, I will say, like, even after that happened, I don't ever remember feeling like, oh, I hate this guy. I just, I actually thought it was just kind of tragic. It was a tragic story because I'm like, man, like, this is someone everyone looked up to. And I think we all really believed his denials because, like, and then, but you were, and you were, but most importantly, you were lying every single time. Like, Yeah, I think another <sighs> – well, we'll get into it. So, it was heartbreaking. He was born in 1971, which makes him a, about the same age as me, by the yeah. way. In Plano, Texas, just, just outside Dallas, raised by his mother. Uh, I think his biological father wasn't around at all. Not at all. Right. So right there okay. we have a trauma of abandonment yeah. and neglect that would affect both his mom and maybe compromise her parenting and him. Right. Age two, 1973, uh, his parents divorced. So, it, you know. Yeah. I don't know. So they weren't together and then they divorced. And I, I think so. Something like that. Some, something not great. 1974, uh, mother married again when he was around three. And this is where the Armstrong name comes from. Is That's his uh, stepdads? Yeah. Okay. Right. And he adopted Lance. So okay. then he, he was took on the name Armstrong. It's a good last name. They divorced uh, soon after that. So it was just Lance and his mom. Again. Again. Oh, that's double double dip. And his mom worked long hours as a secretary, so she wasn't really around very much for right. him. So this is total speculation. Oh, man. I have no idea. Uh, maybe there's publications out there that will, you know, refute this or support it. I don't know. Total speculation is that... Uh, in all likelihood, he grew up with a fair amount of neglect and abandonment and, right. and general mistreatment. I don't know about any abuse, but having a father that's not there, that's, yeah. that's, that's mistreatment. Divorce always causes issues. Um, a stressed out mom who's working all the time, you know, that, that's going to put a right. cramp on your personality, so to speak. Which, I mean, divorce is, is pretty jarring at any age, but like when you're so young. Yeah. 
I mean, it's not divorce it's ever been, but it's like bad. Yeah. Attachment insecurity develops because you start to learn experientially that you can't really depend on other people. You start to question whether or not you're a lovable person or not. And you have a choice about coping. You can either Mm -hmm. say, well, is it them or is it me? Right. And he seemingly chose it's them, meaning that Hmm. he had to land on an idea that he's all good and other people are all bad. Interesting. And with a fair amount of uh, anger and grief and um, thoughts of revenge and – meaning that he Hmm. had a pretty strong drive. And I think his mom had an attitude like this too. He talks about how his mom was a real fighter. And I think that they both kind of developed this us against the world thing. And Uh, we're going to show them kind of a thing. Right. And also this notion again, because if it's, if I have, if someone, so when you're treated well enough, you can develop a model of the world where I'm good and other people are good. Right. I have some flaws and other people have some flaws, but in general, I'm good and other people are good. It balances out. Right. You have a yeah. realistic idea of self and others. When you have some incursion on your attachment, you have to hmm. develop these coping mechanisms uh, and you kind of have to become extreme because yeah. if I can't depend on other people, if my mom's at work all the time and my fathers leave me and I'm alone and abandoned, then I can't really depend on other people. I have to depend on myself. Yeah. And in order for me to feel secure in the world, I have to believe that I am very, very good, that I'm smart, I'm capable, I don't need other people. Yeah. Uh, this is attachment avoidant you know, insecurity. And so – which I, Which I can relate to as we've talked about before, like – Obviously, I got saved from not being too extreme in these regards because I had a very, very loving set of family members in Colombia that were aunts, grandmas, uncles, cousins, and the community effect, I think, gave me back some of the pieces that were missing that were really deep wounds, right? But I still ended up developing a situation where, and I, I it's still to this day, like, I don't, it's not easy for me to ask for help, for example. And I don't really think it's, it's everyone is evil or anything, but I do often feel it's me versus the world in like, like if I don't do it, I'm screwed, you know, like those kind of things. And some level of narcissism where you think you're not necessarily superior to other people, but. No, just generally better. (laughs) (laughs) And. uh, Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Some, some level of emotional detachment as a, as a defense mechanism. Right. And yeah. Exactly. So that's what I was going to bring up is in order to cope as well, one has to cut yourself off from your feelings and just generally be unaware of it, yeah. not only on a conscious level, but on a unconscious level. Yeah. Because when you're sad and lonely, it doesn't do any good to notice those feelings because you're not going to be able to, you don't really trust the world to help you with that. Yeah. Um, so I I don't know total speculation, but I there's some signs that we'll get into later where I think he had some of those uh, uh, coping mechanisms to deal with the difficulties he went through as a young person. I um, I, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, top performing athletes or people like Elon Musk, et cetera, like 
any one of these things requires like an inordinate amount of time and commitment and self-motivation and all these kinds of things. I wonder if there's correlation or if there's some sort of studies that show, uh, you know, common personality or attachment uh, issues when someone goes extreme in any one of those directions or if it's really more random than that. Uh, f- meaning people who achieve a lot? Yeah, like really ultra high achievers. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I obviously don't know because yeah. I would have to assess everyone. And I, I don't know if anyone's actually done research like that. It'd be a hard one to manage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I suspect, yeah, that a lot of the high achievers that we observe absolutely had some level. So I would guess that, well, I think Donald Trump actually went through something quite severe because he seems to have quite a coping mechanism mm-hmm. to deal with his insecurities. Yeah. So uh, I think that – but it can't be so severe that you become dysfunctional right. and unable to sustain even any relationships. Yeah. So I think it has to be um, within a certain range. Having said that, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, securely attached individuals who achieved a lot. Right. Um, in fact, secure- – Like it seems like Bill Gates, for example, seems somewhat – Okay. You know, I'll, take your, I'll take your word for it. Well, I just – you know, from like – Having seen, like, he came from a family that was, seems stable. He built a company and then, like, built, like, sort of charity works and things. And, like, you've never seen, other than the infamous testimony in the 90s, like, you've never seen a lot of acting out behaviors from him or really erratic things or, you know, I don't know. It seems like he's maybe a counterexample, but who knows? Hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that he developed this early drive to compete and this early drive to believe that he deserved things, that he, he actually Mm -hmm. could achieve greatness and he needed to achieve greatness is the thing, because in order to uphold the coping mechanism of, I can depend on me Mm -hmm. and I'm good, you have to constantly run for the next goal and achieve it. Because if you slow down and just say, Hey, I'm a good enough person. I've achieved enough already. I don't. I don't necessarily need to win this race, or yeah, yeah. you know, say he's in the sixth grade. If you slow down, then what crops up is these notions of lack of self, notions mm, of insecurity, right. notions of loneliness, and uh, depending on the severity, it's it'll be quite distressing, and you got to get back on that treadmill, so to speak. Interesting. Um, so yeah. Age 13, 1984, he won the Iron Kids Triathlon. Oh, man. So so he, he was doing it from the start. Right. So triathlon, age 13, and won. Yeah. Um, 87, age 16, uh, turned into a professional triathlete. So originally he was a tri- triathlete. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, 1992, age 21, he was in the Olympic Games in Barcelona. What? Yeah. For, for I don't know, cycling, I think. Not shot put? Uh shot collar baller? Uh so now when you have that attachment insecurity and you have that coping style, you're looking for things as a young person to help distract you from the insecurity. And you're also looking for something that will satisfy that need to feel like you matter in the world. Like doing a podcast and talking. Exactly. For example, and he found 
partly because he probably just randomly landed on it and also partly because he is genetically uh, the sort of person who actually can train well and do right. all those things well and maybe was inspired by some or you know he he was just as likely to pursue music or or podcasting <laughs> or politics or being the smartest person in the room you know there there's a lot of different pursuits that people will land on uh, for whatever reason, early in his life, clearly he landed on the uh, this sort of activity and found success. I mean, imagine yeah. winning the, these things when you're 13. Right. These are big. So deals. there's the biological factor where he, you know kids try stuff and stuff that they do better at, they tend to feel more rewarded at, so they start doing more of that. Right. Yeah. And a, a person perhaps with the same biology but with not insecure attachment might have found that, oh, wow, I'm really good at this thing. Yeah. But I'm not going to break my back to win every time. Yeah. I, I'll try. I don't have I, to win every yeah, meet. I'm going to try. Um, but, you know, I'm going to hang out with my friends and I'm in, uh, there's going to be a balance to my life. Yeah. I don't think he's that sort of person uh, back then. I yeah. think he – I don't think he, he – he, again, needed to get on that treadmill right. of – constant achievement to distract him and make him feel worthy in the world of love. And also just imagine the amount of attention and love you got when sure. you won these kinds of things. And so uh, I think he fa- it, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that also – or a vicious cycle in that – so if you will, in that he also probably had to deny relationships. You know, right. he probably had to not really pay attention to socializing or having yeah, yeah. fun. And thus not being able to heal from those attachment wounds, which makes him feel more lonely, which means right. he needs to get into the sports even more. And I have to imagine... Again, total speculation. Right. I have to imagine that, you know, kid, the younger you are, when you start dramatically succeeding at things, the harder it may be for you to put that in perspective as you're growing up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and again, the attachment insecurity and those around you who put it in perspective. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so like maybe if you're a kid in Hollywood and you have really good parents and they really guard you well, they put you in, in still in school and then they limit how much actual work you're doing, all these kinds of things. Maybe you can end out uh, walking out of that not too scathed. But Hollywood meaning they were an actor? Yeah. But like so many kid actors, they don't walk away. They walk away horribly scarred right. because they had all this success and this reality becomes like, oh, oh, okay, this is the world. The world is this thing that loves me and I'm like flawless, but I'm not. But I hate myself. But what? It makes me think of, and again, I have no idea, the kid who played uh, Joffrey Baratheon. Oh, yeah. Who was a huge star at one point. Right. And then decided he didn't want to act anymore. Oh, man, yeah. He just he like, got so much hatred. Well, I also think he just thought, ah, I don't know, it's just not for yeah, me. Yeah, it's not for me. And he is really interested in going to college and having yeah. a career of some kind of specialist, professional, I can't remember what he was, I think science, I think. Oh, wow. And he was, and he seems like a delightful fella. And so I don't, again, I don't know, but yeah. you could imagine, it, 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 that's a sign of someone, again, who has flexibility and isn't going to yeah. ruin their life over, you know, trying to pursue the accolades of society. So 1995, he goes pro. As the story goes, he kept getting beat by other cyclists who were using per- performance-enhancing drugs and procedures. 
So he went to the physician that everyone else was going to and got his performance-enhancing right. drugs. And th- this is the thing I was going to bring up at some point. The, the part that's unfortunate in this whole conversation is that we all, you know, I think a lot of us might pretend like, oh, so he was using drugs? Oh, no wonder he won all the... The, the thing is, so many of them were using drugs. He was still like the top athlete or one of the top athletes. Now, you know, so if you could wave a magic wand and everyone else stopped using drugs and he stopped using drugs, would he still win all the championships? We're not sure, but there's no way he wasn't going to win a lot of those championships anyways, even with or without the drugs, if everyone else wasn't taking well, the drugs. Well, we'll we'll get into that. Um, I, I guess that, what, I'm that's trying, a good discussion what I'm trying to say is that it's not like... And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about the science here. But it's not like when you take these drugs, for some people it boosts them four hundred percent, and for some other people a hundred percent. No, know? no. If you and I took those performance yeah. enhancing drugs and procedures, uh, we would still be dead last. Yeah, uh, exactly. In that race, but we'd be first in podcast. <laughs> have we? Tr- like, have we even talked about it? I think caffeine is a uh, performance enhancing drug. But what if we took steroids and podcasted? <laughs> That's a great point, Kirk. (laughs) Throw the table. On that note, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's uh, discuss more about this. What do you say? Toxic. Let's do it. All right. We're back from the break. So, Umberto, if Lance Armstrong, during his denial days, were to ask people to become patrons of the podcast, what would he say? You know me well. I trained so hard. He would sing. I net. Oh, I thought he. Oh, he's not a singer, is he? Okay. Um, <laughs> so he somehow does in all that, you you interpret. Oh, I'm. This is a song. This is a song, of course. And then did I say I, sing a song? Maybe I, I s- don't know. But he sings in this reality, so just let it be. Let it be. Anyways, he he says. Uh, I never drink or do any enhancing drugs. But if you give, I win the Tour de France. Very hard for you. <laughs> so this is like the musical version. Well, you know, what What happens is I don't actually know, remember what he talks like. So I can't do like some sort of impersonation. He When he denied in the news, he would, he was... Very definitive. Okay. He's like, listen, I got one thing to say. And for all you, be- and I've heard a lot of people say, I have never, ever asked anyone to donate to this podcast or will I ever do it again? Period. And that's my final answer. That's pretty good. That, that, was, right. that, that, that was there pretty we much right. But I like the fact that he's saying. <laughs> All right, so... By the way, I'd like to apologize for my outburst before the break because... This is the roids! Uh, okay. So, he started, quote-unquote, doping, which just always grates my ears whenever whenever anyone uses dope, like, as a word for uh, heroin or pot. Or, oh, really? Or it just doping, it just sounds so silly to me. What does it come from? From dopamine or from... No, I don't. From it's like dope. It's well, cool. It's, well, I don't know where the origins, but dope. I would, from the little bit of, of of awareness I have of this world, is that 
dope is an is a word for drug, you know. Yeah. It's it's like a code word. Like yeah. the pot was originally a code dope. word. Um pot. and so maybe it I don't know, anyway. Interesting. So uh, Lance would later admit that to using lots of different co- – so dope is a general term for lots of different things, for using growth right. hormones, cortisone, EPO, steroids, testosterone. Oh, my God. And also, quote, unquote, blood doping. So everything, all of the above. Yeah. So do Holy you know what – crap. Do you know what blood – but mainly he was doing blood doping and um, and steroids, which let's get into Jeez. something – so you know what blood doping is? Isn't that basically kind of like the shortcut to high altitude training where it's like you can carry more oxygen? Yeah. But yeah. do you know like how they do it? No. More blood cells? More – what do they do? Yeah. It's more red blood cells. Oh, they literally inject you with more blood cells. Right. So from my understanding oh, – So it's – EPO drug increases that and also you you do blood transfusions. You actually – I think what they do, if I'm not mistaken – is you actually extract your own blood, and there's some Let's procedure in a machine that can extract the red blood cells from it. Right. And then so you, you don't add more fluid. Right. That'd be kind you, of, and <laughs> you do yeah. actual red blood cells. What and the? that means you can carry oxygen to the muscles. Yeah. Um, That's incredible. And can you imagine where the first usage was for that? What kind of sport or what? Uh, Whatever you think. Oh, okay. Let's see. Um, astronauts. Uh, close, but before Everest. that. Before that. Not Everest. Um, even before that. Uh, treating wounded soldiers. Uh, good. Military. They use this for uh, high-altitude pilots. Oh, okay. So, for Air Force. Got it. So, yeah. Military, they used it to help uh, pilots at high altitudes and other such uses in the military in 1947. So a long time ago. That is a long time ago. Um, and I wonder if, you know, because when you're in a plane, a commercial plane, it's pressurized. But I suppose um, maybe in the small little jet fighters, they can't quite pressurize as much. Well, so they might be. What they did was they would they have. the gas masks. Yeah, they have respirators. Yeah. And uh, so I actually, I don't know the details yeah. on that. But, um, Interesting. So what are the adverse effects of this process, do you think? Of blood doping specifically? Yeah. Well, let me think. For one thing, so you are introducing more cells, more blood cells, uh, but your blood pressure must rise a bit. Like, mm. yeah, I would think so. Um, that can give you potentially heart problems down the line. Um, and then maybe when you're not blood doping, you like maybe you, your body like tries to compensate. Like, okay, well, we got enough blood cells, so let's not produce as many. Mm. Stuff like that. I don't know about that second one, but the first one is true. It actually makes your blood so thick that it can clog, clog your arteries. You. Yeah, it can clog your arteries. Uh, increases the chance of heart attack, stroke, etc. Also, liver failure, pituitary problems, and can increase cholesterol levels. Eeks. Um, he also took steroids. So do you know, which is a hormone, hormones. Yeah. Do you know the psychological effects of taking steroids? You mentioned one earlier. <laughs> I've just, just what I've heard. Mostly I... I, as, as I understand it, it might make you more aggressive, more irri- irri- irritable, uh, shorter patients, that kind of thing. It actually can. Uh, aggression, roid rage is an actual observed thing. <clears throat> yeah. It can make you paranoid and delusional. Uh, it can cause one to be jealous. It can impair your judgment. It can, in, it can induce mania. Pretty rare, though, is the thing. A lot of people 
are using uh, steroids and most people aren't running around trying to kill everyone. It can cause health problems like kidney failure and liver damage and heart problems, increased risk of stroke and heart attacks similar to blood doping. In men, it can shrink your testicles because... Mine specifically? Like if you take steroids, it can shrink my testicles? Yep. Jeez. Uh, You can develop breasts and it can increase your risk of prostate cancer. In women, it can cause growth of facial hair, decreased breast size, male pattern baldness, Mm. enlarged clitoris, and a deepened voice. And in teens, it can stunt your growth. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting. In in men, it basically can take away some of your male, uh, you know, biological markers, so to speak. Yeah. And in women, it can uh, add male biological markers. So So it's possible that he accelerated the possibility of him getting prostate cancer as a result of his... It was testicular cancer. Testicular cancer. But yeah, I mean, maybe. So I personally, like what I like to do is I inject um, gorilla uh, muscle tissue into my nuts. So he later said that everyone was doing it once he admitted to doing it, he's, he, he said basically a lot of people were doing it, if not all the main competitors. He said, as we were talking about earlier, it was the only way to compete. Do you believe that to be true? <laughs> it, it, yeah. I mean, the, the things that I've heard about that sport and a few others is that if you don't do it, you're just not going to be I mean, if, depending on what you mean by compete, if you want to be part of the sport and show up, great. If you want to try to win and the top people are also doping, yeah, right. sadly, you got to kind of do it. Right. So if Lance Armstrong wasn't using performance-enhancing drugs and he entered a race with, say, a smaller race in Colorado or something, yeah. and the competition was lower than he could win because yeah. he is a excellent cyclist, excellent shape, good form, trains a lot, all that kind of stuff. He's a he's a good cyclist. Right. But when you get to the upper levels, you're going to try to do you're going to do everything you can, and uh, you're going to do thousands of things. Yeah. And everything you do increases your speed just a little bit more. Yeah. You if you train, you you know five hours a day instead of four and a half. Yeah. If you make sure your your BMI is X instead of X plus one. Right, right. If you don't drink alcohol, if you don't smoke cigarettes, if you don't, um, if you make sure you sleep well every night, you know, every yeah. little thing you do. Especially at those world, world record levels, yeah. like the Olympics, you know, the whole joke, Seinfeld, whatever. It, it literally is micro things, right. micro things. Yeah. The, 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 you know, they will shave their legs right. and they, there's different helmets and they've done tests yeah. where this helmet will shave five seconds off of your time. This particular t- type of material that you wear, this seat is half uh, a gram lighter and therefore we'll, we'll add, <laughs> we'll, we'll subtract half a minute off of a four hour race. Right, right. And so, uh, and it's all, you know, it's all in And now science. all that is legal. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I absolutely believe this. I played very competitive sports growing up. 
if you, I know I've said this before on the podcast, if you ask people who grew up with me and they didn't know me very well, uh, depending on the situation, many of them would think of me just as a jock. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that was one of my sort of outward identities. I was captain of the football team. I was captain of my wrestling team. I was captain of my soccer team when I was a kid. I was so I not only competed, but I was I was considered a leader and considered a high competitor. I went to the University of Washington training camp or recruitment camp. Uh, once I was there, I realized there's no way I'm going to make the team, uh, but I was encouraged to walk on and become a, a walk on, and just didn't. So uh, I I was a you know, I was a major competitor right. and I played a, a position that required a lot of strength. I played uh, fullback and I also played middle linebacker. Middle linebacker in particular, it requires a fair amount of strength and mm-hmm. endurance. And uh, a lot of people around me were taking steroids. Oh, in high school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. So much. And I never took it. Uh, in fact, <laughs> My friends never even offered it to me because they knew, you they knew I wouldn't take it. Yeah, which I find to be so interesting that they didn't even they didn't even bring it <laughs> they up. Didn't even try. Yeah, and but yeah, all the all my friends wow. took it at least part of the time because we would be working out, and so part of your conditioning is working out in the weight room, sure, three or four hours a day during your, the off season in particular. And you would just see the guy next to you hmm. uh, uh, increasing his his body mass, his muscle mass, right. incre- increasing his, his – the big the thing numbers. back in the day was h- how much you could bench press. Right, right. And you and everyone would announce like I'm up to 210. Ooh, I you know do it. You're at you're at your record 220. You can do it. And I did 225. That was my best in high school. Right. So imagine if you could take a drug. If someone next to you said, you know, if you take this drug. In a week, you'll be doing 250. Yeah. Just imagine how tempting that would be. Yeah, yeah. And and so I didn't, I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the the downside to using blood doping and steroids are actually pretty low. The chance of you having a problem is actually pretty low uh, if you do it according to physician orders, especially, mm-hmm. and you monitor things. It, it's actually pretty safe. It definitely has its um, potential downside, but. Um, it's not like one out of 10 high school kids using steroids Mm -hmm. has some kind of massive noticeable issue, you know? Um, so it's like, Hey, you know, um, so not only that, but when you are in the culture of competitive sports, it is a mentality and a culture and a world that is completely separate and different and distinct from the rest of the world. Yeah, you and there are there are competitive uh, women's softball players who take steroids. There are competitive curlers who probably don't take steroids. <laughs> but there's a world of competition where the that's all that matters in life. Yeah, that is all that matters. That upcoming thing. There are people I know who are into weightlifting competitions and they will that's every minute of every day is building up towards that next right. competition and the training and again you're doing everything you're you're you know like uh just to get into some of the things I wrote some notes down in terms of well before I get into that um you get 
not only is it a world that is culturally kind of um, homogenous where everyone thinks a certain way, you know, in my world of the football world that I lived in, no one said things like, well, you know, it's just a game. Yeah. No one said that. No one, no one said, well, you know, maybe you won't get a scholarship in college. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, Or very few people said it. Let's just put it that way. We have to win on Friday. Right. Um, so there was a very uh, – it, it becomes this group think that right. is is very much geared towards winning and being the best player and, and all that kind of stuff. But you also get tons of attention from everybody. I mean the, the amount of attention I got from being a, a sporto was enormous. Right. I mean, yeah. Like I said, for some people, that's all they know of me. <laughs> Because yeah. of how much attention I got for being captain of the football team, you know. It's funny. I didn't know you and I had so much in common. Because, you know, people, pe- you're saying people that didn't know you very well consider you kind of a jock. Yeah. And people who didn't know me very well consider me kind of a joke. <laughs> that really paid off, my friend. Um, newspaper articles. Pictures in the yearbook. Adults in, kissing your ass. I can't tell you how many times I would walk. I, I, was, I was like 16 years old, 15 mm-hmm. years old, 17. I'd walk off the field and the adoration that mm-hmm. I got from adults because people in the community and the parents and, and my fellow students. I mean, right. I can remember beat by beat. This, this, so when I was a sophomore, no sophomores were on the varsity team. You know, it was okay. all juniors and seniors. And they had me suit up for the game. Mm. And that was an honor. Just I was on special teams. I was on kickoff and kickoff return, I think. And that was sort of like where they put like all the, the clean shirts, we called them, because they didn't get dirty. <laughs> but I was just so happy. Just, you know, I was a star just to be like the one of the two or three sophomores who just suited up for the varsity <laughs> games. And the sophomores who sat in the stands there were a lot – so a little thing about high school football in our area back then was that the seniors were out drinking and smoking, so they didn't go to the games. <laughs> so it's the juniors and sophomores kind of – And the juniors are sort of edging in that direction. The sophomores, some, most of them didn't have cars or licenses, mm-hmm. so there's only one thing you could really do on, the, on a Friday night, and that was to go watch the football game. And you just had to sit in the stands and – so half of the stands were not half, but a lot of the stands were the sophomores. And Idolizing to, the seniors that are playing. And knowing me. Right, exactly. You know, it's like, there's Kirk Honda. And because, you know, that'd be one of the first things you sort of look at. And then a long string of events happened, concussions, injuries, and suddenly I'm in the game. Wow. And the very first play, uh, I batted a pass right in front of our like bench. Baseball? Yeah. Uh, right in front of our bench and in front of our stands. And the eruption of cheering, uh, and the announcer, actually, I grew up right now, the guy who announced all the games over the yeah. loudspeaker knew me extremely well. He, I grew up right next to him. So as soon as he saw me doing something, he was actually really happy. And so he, oh. he announces it, and Kirk Honda with, with the you know, deflected pass. And, and it's just a stupid little moment in yeah. sports. But I can remember beat by beat because of the uh, just the um, I was fifteen at the time, and right. just that super amount of fame. And then I walk off the field at the end of the game. Everyone, especially my fellow sophomores, were just going crazy over me, ah. you know, because football is so important 
in America, particularly in certain communities like the one I was in. And so imagine if uh, someone right next to me were watching that whole thing happen. Or imagine for me if I started to kind of fall behind and I loved Mm. that attention and needed it a lot and grew up with insecure attachment and didn't have the loving, secure, safe parents that I did. Imagine that I'd be like, hey, you know, I got to keep this, I got to keep this boat afloat. And if it takes taking a a steroid that I see my friends taking, then hey, let's do it. So question, what did the parents call you? Honda or Kirk or Kirk Honda? Honda. Everyone called me Honda. You'd come off the field and like some parent is like, Honda, looking good out there, son. Absolutely. Yeah. And then they run into you at the grocery store. Hey, what a game on Friday. Absolutely. You know, we're counting on you for this season, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. That's hilarious. So when when I first moved up here when I was 15, one of my mom's best friend families, the the husband was his name was George. And he was a big dude, a little on the heavy side because of his age, but you know, he was clear he was a big dude. He probably played football. I'm pretty sure he played football. And he loved football, you know, he loved all the games and everything. And we would go over to their house around Christmas time and stuff. And at first he would just like love trying to talk to me about football and sports and like uh, oh, the lakes. Lakes was my high school. The lakes, man. They did great. Like, were you at the, you know, and I'd pretend like, oh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, what do you think about the, the, you dove, the Huskies uh, chances this? And, uh, you know, eventually I was like, yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> but he always was trying to like engage me in that. Right. It's a way for a community to have a common language. Right. Like talking about Seinfeld back in the day. Yeah. Or what's in the news. It's, it's a, it's a community builder. And to be the star and the hopes of a community, you know, because when when my team beat Mercer Island, which was one of our rivals and who doesn't hate Mercer Island, uh, (laughs) we uh, our community felt good. We had self-esteem in the same way that, you know, when Seattle went, Seattle Seahawks win our, you know, a good portion of our city actually just has a bump in self-esteem and totally and vice versa. So, so yeah, Absolutely. um, like my, 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 uh, last bit claim to fame when I was a senior in high school, I was in the swim team and there were only two of us seniors in the team and all the really good swimmers had graduated, you know, well, no, that's not fair. We had a really good freshman swimmer stuff, but the point is we were up against our rival school, Clover Park. It was lakes versus Clover Park. That was the last meet of the season. And we won. And the, the last little thing was the relay race. And I was in the relay. And I was the last swimmer because I was the, the crawl stroke. And we won. So right. I was like, you know. Right. So that's another <laughs> performance-enhancing drug uh, industry because it comes down to 0.1 totally. seconds, especially at the, oh, yeah. at the higher level. Uh, so, so, yeah. Uh, now, to go – Further into sports a little bit to, for context for those maybe that weren't in that world. Like I said, you already do hundreds or thousands of weird things to your body already. When I was a wrestler, we had to lose weight. Wrestlers have – it's always weight unless you're a heavyweight, which is like you're, you're free to be whatever weight you want to. But for everyone else wrestling, you're in this constant battle because 
the thing that every so this is kind of like a performance enhancing practice in and of itself that is not good for your body. Losing mm-hmm. weight, the way the things we did to lose weight were probably worse for our bodies than any kind of steroid would have done. Yeah. But essentially, what happens is you're in a weight class, usually about it's like a five pound range, like you know one twenty to one twenty five. And if you weigh say one twenty six, now you're in the one twenty six to one thirty range. Those wrestlers are notably better than the wrestlers in your in your class just because mm-hmm. of their size, their muscles, their blah blah blah. So if you want to be competitive, you gotta be in your in your weight class. But if you lose weight and go down to the one fifteen weight class, then you're gonna dominate. So <laughs> then everyone starts doing that. So everyone who normally would be one thirty is in the one fifteen weight bracket because if you don't do that then you're going to – so say you're naturally 130. You're going to get the 160 guys who managed to lose weight by weigh-in date to 130, and they're going to be bigger, faster, mm-hmm. stronger, just way more brutal than than you are. So you got to lose that weight. And it was really – it was – I there was a moment where – and always, I'll never forget this when I was really trying to make my weight – I usually actually, I didn't care that much about wrestling. So I usually just picked a weight class that I could maintain. Some guys would try to maintain these like insane weight classes. But anyway, there was this moment where I was trying to lose a a lot of weight and I wasn't going to lose fat cells by the next day because you can't, you (laughs) can't do that that fast. So what do you have left? Wada. Right. So we would wrap ourselves in saran wrap. And then yeah. put on sweats and then exercise. Yep. And you were just trying to sweat out just gallons of water. And yeah, you, you lost weight. That's not healthy. Nope. But, and, and also eating cucumbers and carrots, you know. And the, uh, it was totally sanctioned and expected. Like my parents didn't beat you know bat an eye at yeah. that. My my dad probably said, "Yeah, I mean that's what you guys that's do." What you do. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with that from the because I'm a huge UFC fan, uh, you know, like mixed martial arts fan, which is another steroid vill. Right. And and the weight cutting is egregious. There are these problems. I don't know if it's worse than boxing, but boxing's been around for a long time. So like they have a lot of subcategories, and it's kind of been figured out. Let's say. But in mixed martial arts, sometimes the gaps between the categories, there's not enough uh, subcategories. And so the people have to make huge leaps down. And yeah, you get these problems where people nearly die. People have to cancel matches because they go into like seizures. They have other problems. It's horrible. Right. There's a whole documentary about it. Like, and, 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 honestly, and that's a, not steroids. That's just losing weight. That's right. And, and as a fan... I hate that shit because, you know, I'm looking forward to a fight. And I don't want to see this gaunt, like, 180-pound normal person at 155, right? The, the worst, Conor McGregor, you know, one of the most famous ones. He used to fight at 145. At 145, he looks like a skeleton. It's not healthy, man. Well, it's certainly interesting, shall we say. Yeah. You know, f- perhaps for some of them it could be healthy, and obviously for some it yeah. wouldn't be healthy. But that's totally sanctioned. Yeah. That self-abuse, that race to the bottom, shall we say, yeah. that 
um, is totally fine. In fact, it's expected. It's totally sanctioned. They weigh in. That's one of the ceremonial things yeah. that everyone does before those fights. So now getting to football, it gets way worse because of the injuries that I experienced. I had many concussions. I have a broken, I have a broken back that is still broken. Where was it? How high up? Uh, like just above my tailbone. <laughs> so uh, it's to the point where if you look at a x-ray of my back, it's all fucked up. There's, there's nothing you can do, essentially. I, I have a slip disc in my jaw that every once in a while pops out. I had, a, I had several pinched nerves. Uh, they call it, we just called them stingers or pinched nerves, and some of them would last for months. Um, I had massive surgery on my hand twice. Um, others had it worse. Because of broken hand? No, I actually ripped it uh, so hard that the tendon or the yeah oh the tendon that pulls this last knuckle, my guitar hand by the way, <laughs> uh, it, it pulled off the bone right. So oh. I, I couldn't move my finger. Anymore. I remember, I remember because when we started playing, yeah, you were only using two or three fingers, right? I can kind of use it, but yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you run all the time. You work out every day. And before the season starts, we had three practices a day. We call them three days. You know? Three? Like yeah. what? Three, like, three football practices a day. Morning, afternoon, and middle of the day? <laughs> Basically, we were practicing from like seven until seven. You know? And so just think about that. Practicing conditioning all day long, every day. And, you know, so you're already, you know, massive wow. amounts of pain. When I played football, I was... I was in so much pain on an ongoing basis oh just from either conditioning, but also just from bruising, you know, yeah. the amount of pounding your body goes through, even when you hit someone. I mean, that's the one thing that people don't necessarily realize when you watch football is, well, they have pads on. Well, there's a human being underneath that, that pad. <laughs> yeah. it's, the pad uh, spreads the force out over the body, but it doesn't eliminate the force. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I sometimes talk about this, maybe I did in the podcast, is a lot of times when they're congratulating football players, they'll hit you on the head. Smack. They hit you on the, on the helmet. They'll be like, yeah, nice job. And I would tell people to knock that the fuck off because I'm like, my head's underneath that thing. <laughs> but the helmet protects you. It, no, it doesn't. It's like my pet peeve in movies, especially sci-fi movies, where they're traveling in these tiny little capsules and they crash land into the planet right. and the, the door opens and they walk out. You're like, well, it's not just that. <laughs> Iron Man. Right. <laughs> when Iron Man just lands, yep. he would be a jelly <laughs> it, that would just ooze out the bottom right. of that suit. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. It's, it's like your brain knows to stay still, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, everyone knows about baby shaking, right? Like you can kill a baby just by shaking it. Why? Because you're, you're rattling its brain. Is that's that famous kids song? Baby shake, dun, 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 baby shake, dun, 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 oh, baby shake. So uh, pain pills, protein shakes, carb loading before the game. Uh, I wrote this down. Wake <laughs> up, school, practice, homework, sleep. Wake up, school, practice, homework, sleep. <sighs> wake up, school. You know, that's your whole life. Did you do a sport every season or did uh, you take a season off? Meaning, when I, what I mean up is until uh, a certain point. So as I got older, I started eliminating certain things because as I got older, I a part of me loved playing sports, but another part of me was just kind of over it. But when I, I was from say I don't know eight to sixteen or fourteen or something, I that's all I did all year round. I yeah. see. 
So I did uh, swimming and cross country. Cross country was fall, swimming was winter, and then I took the spring off. And because I took the spring off and essentially the summer off, I took six months out of the year off. Uh, it really affected me come fall because I wasn't, everyone else was practicing the whole time. Right. But for some reason, well, not for some reason, I actually was a good swimmer. Mm. It's just, I didn't take it that seriously, right? Yeah. But by my junior year, I had gotten really good because of like, I took some weight training and things like this. So technically, yeah, I could have done two a days throughout the summer. Don't take the spring off, do something or just swim the whole, you know, and I could have been like way better. I guess I just didn't care that much. Right. Yeah, I was that way with basketball. I never, I played basketball a yeah. lot, but I never cared. Plus, I wasn't very good. <laughs> and I never practiced. I just showed up and I didn't really care during practice. Yeah. And it was mostly, well, what it was actually was, so football was my primary sport. And a lot of the other sports were essentially just off-season training mm. for balance, for conditioning. I see. Uh, wrestling in particular, you really get to know the body and leverage and how to use your body for leverage because um, when you're playing football, and particularly as a middle linebacker, and you're, you're trying to uh, sh you know, shuffle off, you're trying to shed blockers, you're trying to make tackles, it has uh, something to do with your body mass and your muscles and your strength but it has much more to do with your ability to to use use what you have and to right. use eyes in any way. Um, so you do all these things, and many of which we're not even getting into. And all you do is you just take this other little drug. You know, in fact, you're probably also taking a lot of other drugs. So you're probably taking five drugs anyways, particularly as you get up to the upper echelons. Right? You're taking creatine, aspirin. Yeah. You're taking like. Probably some protein, protein shakes yeah. and uh, amino boosters yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. And why not just take this other one Yeah, that, uh, that gives you yet another edge, another little boost? So, and that's not, that's not counting the ones you're taking to uh, focus on your studies. You're taking Adderall and Xanax to sleep or whatever. Right. So research, rate of teen boys using steroids in the United States today. Oh, come on, man. So this is all teen boys. It's not just sports. Oh, okay. 10%. 6%. Oh, well, good. Well, that's like more than one in 20. I was expecting you to say something like 15, 20%. Most kids don't play sports that's comp fair. competitively. <laughs> that's fair. So, you know, that's a lot. 6% is a lot. That's a, a lot, lot of, kids. of kids. That's millions upon millions of young yeah. boys. Teen girls, what percentage? No way. Um, okay, fine. 4%. 5%. Okay. So basically the same Almost as boys. The same, yeah. So this isn't – so the stereotype of mm – -hmm. Boys and stereo steroids needs to be that needs to yeah, end. Yeah, it's just kids. It's kids. Eeks. And girls today, in particular, I find to be uh, just as susceptible to the yeah. culture of heavy competition as as boys are. Ironically, oh, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. As we, you know, say, you know, basically there is there's been a movement for sure to say uh, that women. Uh, are almost just as capable in sports as men are. And therefore, I think the same kind of ultra-competitiveness has seeped in, in in that regard. So essentially, like, yeah, there's almost zero difference. Like, you, if you need to be at the top of your game as a woman, it's the same thing as if you need to be at the top of the game as a man. So other famous dopers, other famous performance-enhancing... Well, let's just stick with doping. Do you know any other famous blood doping people? Blood doping? 
I don't know. Yeah, I didn't know about this either, but I looked it up. Started in the 1960s by runners, and a famous example was the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. And really? a, a woman runner, a woman runner, was transfused with two pints of blood, and she won the five and ten uh, kilometer track races. Yikes! And was caught, and I think struck. So, hmm. uh, or. Uh, Strict, stripped of her. Stripped of her, yeah. yeah. And it was it was actually not uh, a problem. It, were, it wasn't um, frowned upon back then. It was just something that people did. It was only outlawed in 1986. So why did they strip her? Uh, maybe they didn't. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, famous cases of performance-enhancing drugs. So, you know, just as a blanket thing. What Do, do you know any famous cases besides Lance Armstrong? Well, I know in the UFC stuff that I follow, uh, there's been a few famous ones like uh, Brock Lesnar and uh, oh, uh, jo- John Jones. And but I don't know. I don't. I have Chael Sonnen. Yeah, Chael Sonnen was also found to be. Uh, recently, there was a, a very lightweight competitor that was famously stripped of his title. He had won, and yeah. But I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess I can't remember right now all the oh football players. There's been several. Oh, I, I know, I know. Mickey, uh, not Mickey Mantle. What I'm talking about, uh, the Sosa and McGuire. Right, exactly. Yeah. So in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, it, very famous baseball cases, uh, Conseco, McGuire. Yeah. Uh, also in running in the 90s, Ben Johnson of Canada right. uh, Olympics. He he got the gold. Uh, the 2000s versus Carl something, Carl Johnson or something. Um, no, Carl. I forget his name, yeah. yeah. Um, and in 2000s in track and field, five gold medals to Marion Jones. Uh, and uh, mm. this person was found to be using performance-enhancing enhancing drugs after the fact. Tyler Ham- Hamilton of cycling, who was actually on Lance Armstrong's team. Oh, okay. Uh, Tour de France rider Alexander Vinokurov and his teammate. Russian hockey player Alexei Cherepanov. German speed skater and five Olympic gold winner Claudia Pestin, hmm. A Rod Barry Bonds in, right. in baseball. Uh, 2006, there was allegations of hundreds of athletes from around the world, various sports. Um, also, actors Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. These people they weren't caught because they don't test in yeah. acting, but it's assumed by many people. Uh, Tyler Perry, 50 Cent, Mickey Rourke, Charlie Sheen. Um, well, Schwarzenegger admitted that oh, he, he used all okay. this stuff because he said, like, well, that's of course just he did. did. That's the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, of course, he was gigantic, that guy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you'd think he didn't. You'd right. think he was born with that, you know? So. A famous Hollywood trainer, again, just just their statement, said that about 20% of actors use steroids today. Uh, just actors? Which I absolutely believe. That's interesting. The uh, the amount of rippitude that some of these guys have. <laughs> I see. Like, they are, they go from just being a regular guy to just being like, like uh, Hugh Jackman was gigantic. Gigantic. Well, as you said, as you said it, I was thinking Anthony Hopkins. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and of course, there's all these, all these action stars. So Chris, and- Chris Hemsworth, 
Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson. And it's not illegal. So for for actors. So so he starts doping Lance Armstrong, getting back to his story. Uh, and immediately he starts to win, as the story goes. Mm. He uh, he raced in one significant competition. He was used to winning in the Olympics and other kinds of triathlon growing up. He gets this major competition and that goes up high in elevation and blah, blah, blah. Right. And he, he just finds like he's just not – he's like pretty far from the front of the, of the pack. Wow. And then he asks around and they're like, well, you know, all those guys ahead of you are doing this blood doping thing. And he's like, well, set me up. I'm already ruining my body with all, all sorts of other things. Let's 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 get that on board too. He takes it, boom, he's, he wins. Tour Tour de Pont in 1996. He set several event records, including the largest margin of victory, three minutes and 15 seconds. Wow! Fastest average speed in time trial. Hmm. Now the question is: Is this a placebo? You know? Yeah, I mean, there's there's mental factors for sure, but. That those percentages, there's no way that's just gonna. But we don't know. That's the whole thing. Like, there's no way to know because he placebo is a powerful thing. Sure. Um, and when you uh, are cycling, a lot of it's mental, right? And so it, it, there could be a, an element to that. I doubt it. I, that I will it's say a major factor, but you know, right? So I, I mean, I will say just my my only experience in this regard because I've never taken performance enhancing drugs other than uh, the blue pill every night. I take a few, but other than that, <laughs> I have experienced the whole altitude thing because I grew up at altitude in Bogota, and when I was younger, especially nowadays, it's not really a factor for me. But when I was younger, I went climbing with a group of friends to Mount Rainier, and we so were, to be clear. You're at Bogota, you're two miles up, yeah. and as an adaptation over many years, perhaps even genetically through the family line, you have an increased amount of red blood cells right. in your bloodstream because there's less oxygen in the air and there needs to be more more, more ability to hold on to oxygen in your blood. And Absolutely. so you come to Seattle – uh, and Tacoma, sea level. which is very close to sea level. Yeah. And then you go climbing Mount Rainier, which climbs to the level of Bogota. To just a little over the level of Bogota. A base camp, base camp of Mount right, Rainier. Right, not the top. Yeah. But yeah. And by the way, it's just like in Himalayas. The, 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 yeah, it's definitely, there's a genetic factor. And then during your life, it accumulates and then it goes down if you move down and all so those So did you just like race up the mountain? Well, that was the thing. We were climbing up and I, at the time, this was in 96, I actually didn't, I knew that I, I guess I knew the altitude of Bogota. I had no idea it played a factor in any of this stuff. So we're going up and I'm finding it normal. We're just hiking. And I actually started jogging and I'm jogging up as it get higher and higher. And then it, or look, everyone else is like, step, step. And they're like, what the hell is your, how, what is wrong with you? How are you jogging? I'm like, I don't know. And it was totally trippy. So from that perspective, I mean, that is one of the few times in my life where I felt like this weird advantage, like physical advantage that's like not just a little bit. It's not like when you are racing someone and you beat them by a little bit. I was like, oh, my God, I'm a superhuman right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not placebo. <laughs> right. So when to, to be actually more specific, when I was in high school, I did that climb as well. Again, top of my conditioning. I was in ex extremely good shape at the time. And it was 
one step for every three breaths. Yeah. By the when you get up to the the nine thousand mark, because you you basically go from sea level to nine thousand, um, you know, in a day, yeah. and your body hasn't acclimated yet. And yeah, I would take us, and it's uphill, so it's kind of hard to do anyway. Yeah. But it, so you're kind of tired in general anyway. And I take a step, another step. Right. That's that's how severe it was. And for you to just be like waltzing up the mountain was yeah. uh, it's that's something to say for sure. It's bizarre when you, especially if you don't know what the hell is going on. You're like, right. So imagine if you take someone who is riding a bicycle and trying to stay energized and pushing hard and you give them that superhuman ability right. that, that you had, maybe even more so, right. absolutely, that's going to that's gonna change totally. things. So 1996, age 25. So at this point, he's, he's on his rise. He, he, mm-hmm. he's, he's already winning. He's already taking the drugs. He's diagnosed with cancer, stage three testicular cancer. cancer. that young. Yeah, 25. Okay. Potentially fatal. Uh, people thought he – so it spread to his lungs, his abdomen, his lymph nodes, his, and his brain. And his physicians were fairly sure he wouldn't survive. So brain cancer, he has lesions. He has, uh, ex, quote-unquote, extensive necrosis. He had to be surgically removed. Uh, so here's one question is maybe that led to some kind of brain damage that resulted in some kind of personality change? Mm-hmm. Hard to say, or the the trauma of going through such a thing could cause personality change as well. He goes to lots of treatment, lots of chemotherapy. Uh, he's dropped by his team, the France team, and and he recovers from the cancer. And he founds Livestrong Foundation, which half a billion dollars, and he joins the U.S. Postal Service team. Which I mm-hmm. find to be hilarious. Yeah, that was his main team. Was the U- oh, I, U.S. I had no idea? Yeah, U.S. Postal Service team. So the U.S. Postal oh, wow. Service sponsors a team because they use bikes a lot. <laughs> yeah. So that so he joins the USA team. Okay. So then he has then he has his major wins seven seven Tour de France victories. Again, all while doping. Sorry. Side note. I mean that that makes sense. I bet you that team was around forever. Because, you know, people used to deliver mail on bikes all the time. So they probably were like, hey, why don't we start a team with these people? I don't know. I, I suspect the U.S. Postal Team got into the game later, but I, I don't know. I bet you I'm right. That's the story. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> uh, I think he actually holds the record for the most Tour de France victories. Wow. I'm not actually quite sure. Olympics in 2000, he, he got the bronze and, and many, many others. I mean, yeah. I was looking at the list and it was all kind of Greek to me, I, all these different titles mm-hmm. that I don't really, I know I've heard of the Tour de France, um, but there's many other things that he won you as well. France. France. He was named the greatest American cyclist, a uh, huge story in the United States. He's, he's an, so this is where the, the, the myth or the story of Lance Armstrong, right? He's from Texas. He's not from Massachusetts. <laughs> right. Like, this is an American right. from Texas, from, quote-unquote, real America. And his last name is Armstrong. Armstrong. He's white. He's an American. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have pride and, sure. uh, you know, I'm just saying it, it's, a, it's, it's a very, there's a lot of romance to this. He's a cancer survivor. He, you know, they thought he was going to die, and he was open about it. And so he was the poster child for so many things. 
American exceptionalism because you know he goes to the he goes to Europe tour to France yeah. and like beats them at their own game. Not only did we liberate you people, but we beat you at everything. Right. Uh, it's sort of like when the American hockey team in 1980 beat the Russian team. Oh, right. It, it, we're it's a big deal. American cyclists are considered not as good as the European ones, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so there's this new movie coming out about uh, Ferrari versus Ford. Yeah, I've seen the preview. It's a similar kind of thing. Like uh, this notion somehow that right. Europeans are superior and this, you know, upstart with the Ford Shelby anyway. Right. Um, so he, so not, so American exceptionalism, we're better than Europe. We're, we're taken over, you know, we're, we're, we're good at everything, including cycling. Uh, also this notion of just do it right. This notion of like, never give up. Even if you have cancer, you never give up. And cycling has a, a very, uh, clear appeal for that. Of, mm. Cause, cause it, we all know that feeling of, riding a bike or running where you just want to give up. Yeah. Just, uh, and it's like Lance Armstrong never gives up. These colors don't run. I keep sort of making fun of the conservatism. Sure. It probably, they, most Lance Armstrong fans were probably liberal on yeah. some level, but anyway. Well, but, and, and what you're saying though, as far as sports go, when you think like, what are some of the longer endurance kind of sports? Cycling absolutely comes to mind. Cause right. like, it's they're hours. not riding an hour, right? Not two hours. No, they're riding days, yeah. weeks. It's like this crazy amount of exercise, right? Also, cancer awareness was starting to become a thing. In that, a lot of people throughout history have been impacted by cancer, personally and also in their family. And it was in America anyway, kind of a marginalized group of people. Mm. Because we don't like to talk about death, we don't like to talk about illness, we don't like to talk about weakness, and so there's so when he came forward, I think there was this huge relief and and uh, gathering around the totem that was Lance Armstrong around cancer. We can beat cancer, and he did, and he's talking about cancer. He he's he's the poster child for for. Uh, yeah, we can beat it. We can do it. Yeah. And so I think that made him just skyrocket in terms of his his appeal to people. 1998, he would have been 27, married. He uh, actually, he gets married. He saved his sperm from before his procedures, oh. and he had three children. 1999, so this is when the doping allegations start. He lied and lied and lied. His teammates came forward. Uh, he would attack them in the press. Wait, his teammates came forward and said, yes, he does dope? Yeah, they came forward and said, we all do it. We all do it. In fact, many of them came forward and said he was the one who pressured everyone to do it. Oh, shit. And then he came and said, lies. These people are lying. Right. Oh. Over and over. So this is going back to 1999. Right. Uh, also, his teammates said that he was a bully. Have you heard of this stuff? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I guess I did hear, now that I think about it, I heard the whole thing about how he would instigate others to do the, the doping. But I don't remember the bullying part. But yeah. I guess that's how you do it. Right. So one of his teammates, uh, I think that Tyler fella, I'm not quite sure, uh, it, it tells a very believable story about how uh, intimidating and, and bullying and aggressive he mm. was. Like, um, for example, he would threaten people for outing him and other people about performance-enhancing drugs. He 
said to one person, according to this individual, that, quote, unquote, I'm going to make your life a living hell. Really? So that's a particular kind of bullying, right? It's yeah. one thing to get upset and kind of big. It's another thing to say something like, because of what you did, I'm going to make your life a living hell. That's a particular brand of bullying. Yeah. Like, I've gotten angry before, and I've probably, quote, unquote, bullied people in the moment because I was upset and kind of rattled and defensive or hurt and just, you know. It's another – but I've never said, (laughs) I'm going to make your life a living hell. Imagine if you did that as a professor or as someone who takes care of people or something. Like, I am now got a vendetta. Like, my mission is now to make your life miserable. Right. Well, imagine even just having that thought. Right? Like, Yikes. I hate you, and I'm going to scare you right now into submission, or I'm going to try. I'm going to cut <laughs> your heart out. Uh, so he also, apparently, there's allegations that he said that he was going to put a bullet to the head over email. So, wait, wait. Yeah. Like he threatened, like. Yeah, like he threatened to murder people by shooting him in the head. Again, these are allegations, but given the the amount of people who came forward and Jeez. talked about this and the believability and the way they deliver the story, it it seems believable. So it's completely two different people in the public and Right. He threatened wives <sighs> and of teammates, so not only just his teammates but wow. but their wives. Uh he was uh, generally hard to get along with, which I kind of get because, again, if you're a major competitor, like I said, you're you're doing everything you can. And one of the things you might eliminate from your life is like fun mm. <laughs> and getting along with people because you're you have a sole focus. I have that story that I think I've told in the podcast. Uh, I used to have this friend in college um, and JC, we called him Juan Carlos. He was Mexican. He went to Tulane University, and then he moved up here. And I think he was doing some postgraduate work or something at UW. And we, you know, we became friends through my friend Carlos, the Argentinian. Uh, great guy. We party, go out, drank a ton. Awesome. Okay. Years go by, and we lose touch. And I know he had gotten a lot into exercise. Him and I went running every now and then. And then one day we went running, and I couldn't keep up. I was like, whoa, man, you're, you've gotten really good. Like, what the hell? He's like, yeah. Okay, then I, I lost touch for a while. One day I was playing with my band, the original, original missionary with Chanel on drums and some cl- club in Seattle. And afterwards I go, and in the audience, like not even the audience, just the club he happened to come in, he, there he is. He's like, dude, I didn't know you had a band. I'm like, JC, what the hell? What are you doing out? It's like, just random. I'm here, blah, blah, blah. So we talked for a little bit. And I'm like, what have you been doing? Well, I, I got into Iron Man. What? It's like, yeah, I'm doing an Ironman in such and such date and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, that's amazing. So then we keep talking. I'm like, all right, dude, when are we going to get together? We got to like catch up and stuff. It's like, oh, I don't think I can. I'm like, oh, oh, you, because you're a race. But what about after the race? He's like, no, no, you don't get it. Like, I'm always training. Okay, well, what about the weekend? No, the weekend I train the most. Right. Oh. And then I, I was like, what time do you wake up? Five. What time do you go to bed? Like, pretty soon it was clear we weren't going to get together. Yeah. Then a few years that or he didn't like you. That probably yeah. A few years go by, and me and Eric we're like out drinking a little bit, having fun. It's like nine p.m. on a Friday or something, and I we decide to call him up. Let's call JC. We call him up. Hello, dude, JC. What's going on? What's up? And he's super angry. He's like, "Do you realize like 
I have children and it's like 9 p.m. and like you're calling me and waking up. I have to wake up super early. Do not call me at night. I was like, oh, oh, okay, sorry, man. Bye. And that was the, that was it. You never talked to him again? I've never talked to him again. Wow. Like he made a choice, you know, it's just fine. Yeah. He chose this thing that he's super passionate about, but it changed his life completely. So to your point, right. fun was out the window. Right. Not necessarily because fun is bad, but fun breeds people who bother you yeah. to do fun things, which right. take you away from training and, you know. And, and by the way, I'm not like, hey, man, that's how people succeed in whatever they want to do, right? It's just, it shocked me because I'm, my personality tends to be like about friendships and, and loyalty about those friendships. So whenever something like that happens, I'm taken, I'm caught off guard. Totally, yeah. 2003, he'd been, would have been 32. He gets a divorce from his first wife. Do you know who he dated famously? Yeah, Cheryl Crow. Yep. They actually, All I want to do is take some dope. They got engaged, then they broke up. He reportedly also dated Kate, Huts, Kate Hudson yeah? and Ashley Olsen. What? But I don't know. From the Olsen twins? He wrote two best-selling autobiographies around this time. Uh, do you know what major politician he was very good friends with? Clinton? George W., Oh. Texas. Oh, right, 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 right. Uh, he, started, he started talking about running for governor of Texas. Oh, I kind of remember that. Yeah, that's interesting. That would have been successful, absolutely, had so this it, not happened. I don't know, just speculation, but again, more of this narcissism of, you'll see that with narcissistic people is they just tend to think they're good at everything. Like, you're yeah. both good at music and podcasting. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, come on, man. Come on. Uh, raises a bunch of money for cancer, as we talked about. He has a relationship with Anna Hansen, and they have two children, quote-unquote, naturally. What? Two, uh, not sure what that means. Okay. <laughs> Meaning that I think maybe his sperm count came back. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway. 2012, he uh, finally gave up fighting the authorities and, and because he was found, uh, you know, that he had used. Mm -hmm. But he, he has a quote here. I've been dealing with claims that I cheated and had an unfair advantage. Oh, no, no, sorry. So this is before he was caught. Okay. So he, so It's in 2012, but before he's yeah. finally... Okay. So he says, I have been dealing with claims that I cheated and had an unfair advantage in winning my seven tours since 1999. This toll has taken... The, the toll this has taken on my family and my work for our foundation... And on me leads me to where I am today. I'm finished with this nonsense. Hmm. So I think he pulled out of cycling. I think because he actually suspected that the gig was up gonna, soon, and so he's trying to get ahead of it on some level. I, I remember that conference. I do remember that conference. Yeah, and the, go ahead. I still believe it. Yeah. So the yeah, of course. There. Well, one. I think part of the looking back, a lot of people are going to be like, "Man, people must have been naive, right?" But. The awareness of performance-enhancing drugs was so low, and the assumption culturally of just like, well, it must just be like one out of a thousand people do it, maybe less. And this, because of course, because everyone keeps it quiet, they're not going to admit it. And when they get caught, they're going to say, oh, it must have been a weird, I must have had a poppy seed bagel or something. Right. You know? it, and so that's the party line. Plus... All of our favorite athletes, or half, are using performance-enhancing drugs is not something anyone wants to accept. I mean, yeah. um, imagine Michael Jordan, how many of his fans. Imagine LeBron James. I mean, you know, all these people, you have to, yeah. you know, with, just think 
with Michael Jackson, when that the the amount of people who want to believe that he did not sexually abuse kids. Now, people su- still write me about that. You've just turned this episode into another hate fest. <laughs> yeah. To set the record straight, I don't know if he sexually abused people or not, and neither do you, unless you are one of the alleged victims. Uh, but the evidence is pretty strong. Anyway, so when that happened, the amount of people who want to want to believe that Michael Jackson is innocent is so strong. And with Armstrong, it was the same. And so we're all susceptible to that. But with education and awareness, we can become better at being able to say, huh, well, maybe, you know, with both things, not with uh, doping, but also more importantly, with sexual abuse for kids. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency concluded that Armstrong had been using performance-enhancing drugs over the course of his career. So it wasn't wow. just a one-time test. It was like a full investigation, talking <laughs> to people, blah, blah. And they're just like, actually, not only was, has he been using over his entire career mostly, that he was also the ringleader of, <laughs> quote, the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. Oh, my God. I never heard that part. Yeah. So he, he was the ringleader. Wow. He was stripped of all of his achievements from 1998 onward, including his seven Tour de France titles. Uh, he has a lifetime van, ban from all sports that, that follow the world anti-doping code. This includes things like marathons. Right. So he he can't even be he can't even oh. run in a in a marathon. So he can't sign up for like the Boston Marathon or something. No. In fact, he he he's come out saying that he thinks this is ridiculous because he when he runs a marathon, he he can raise a lot of money for charities. And he thinks that it's terrible that they would deny charities money, blah, blah, blah. I think he just wants to compete still, you know. Well, I wonder if they could make a deal like sure. You got to keep under this or above this pace. And then you can run. So that, you know, like, you won't win, but you can, you can run. Uh, 2013, Oprah interview. He finally admitted it. It was all true. And he said he started doping all the way back in 1995. Wow. Several drugs. He says, quote, I am deeply flawed, and I'm paying the price for it. And I think that's okay. I deserve this, he says. So this is him. So some would say, wow, you know, he came forward and admitted it. Uh, which is great. But you have to understand, it had been decades yeah. of him lying and lying yeah. and lying. And after everyone knew it to be true, he admitted it finally. So that's important to to take note of. Um, it, yeah, it, it, with things like that, it's like you still want to encourage the person to finally, just do, just finally, just say it, just say it, right? You want to do that. But you can't get too much credit for doing that. It's right. like, okay. So you did it, and now you finally know it. But we already knew it. But thanks for finally admitting it. But that's about it. You don't get special credit, right? Some credit because some people never admit it. Right. We can think of examples of people who never admitted mm-hmm. what everyone knew to be true. Mm-hmm. And so I absolutely give them credit for that. I mean, right. we you know we tend to think, well, of course he admitted it because everyone knew. It's like no, there are plenty of people. <laughs> who just hold on to it till the day they die. Uh, Bill Cosby, for example, you know. Um, They also, Oprah and Lance Armstrong, also talked about the bullying issue, which I think is, to me, is actually more important to know. Because like like we talked about, actors, all sports, Mm -hmm. pretty much, 
there's performance enhancing drug use, but the bullying, you know, the, the intimidation. So they had a conversation about that. Right, well, right. Because the, the fact that he used and then got stripped, okay, that affects him and his family. It affects other athletes that were competing that maybe were clean. And, but, but the bullying is a very direct aggression to those teammates and to those families. And it's, right. yeah. Could cause like PTSD and stuff. Totally. Oprah, were you a bully? Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, I was a bully. Oprah, tell me how you were a bully, Lance Armstrong. I was a bully in the sense that I tried to control the narrative, and if I didn't like what someone said, and for whatever reasons in my own head, whether I viewed that as someone being disloyal or a friend turning on you or whatever, I tried to control that and said, that's a lie, they're liars. Hmm. Oprah, is that your nature? When somebody says something that you don't like, you go on the attack? Armstrong, my entire life, Oprah, your entire life, Lance Armstrong, my entire life. So this points to that early uh, issue with him perhaps being, you know, modeled by his mom, Oprah. So you were doing that when you were 10 years old, 12 years old, and 14 years old, Lance Armstrong. It's interesting. I grew up, as most people know, I mean, we, we grew up as fighters. My mom was young when she had me. She sort of always felt like maybe it wasn't reality, but we felt like we were we had our backs against the wall the whole time. So I was always a fighter. My mom was always a fighter, still a fighter. Before my diagnosis, I would say I was a competitor, but I wasn't a fierce competitor. And in an odd way, that process turned me into a, a person that's going to, it was truly win at all costs. When I was diagnosed and I was being treated, I said, I will do anything I have to do to survive. And that's good. And I took that attitude, that ruthless and relentless and win-at-all-costs attitude, and I took it right into cycling. Hmm. Because quite frankly, it followed because quite frankly, it followed it up almost immediately. And that's bad. Oprah. But you'd already been doing drugs before that. Doing drugs meaning taking banned substances. Lance Armstrong. Correct. But I wasn't a bully before mm. that. So right here, he's, I don't know, he's sort of being weird because he's like, uh, I, so if we're to take his word for it, he, he always had a sort of element of a fighter and maybe a little bit of a dick growing up. But after going through the real trauma of almost yeah. dying and all the, you know, the, at, at such a young age, 25, that's when he really ramped up his competitive streak and became that's when he really amped up his bullying you know one thing that comes to mind i don't know if this happens to you it happens to me and i've certainly had been been victimized if you will by happening to other people so when i there's been times in my life when i get really on a solid schedule and everything i'm supposed to be doing that day i'm doing it and i'm waking up early and i'm working out and i'm doing my work and i'm doing everything and i just get on like this train and as after a couple days or a few days of this, I start feeling like I'm the man and I know – and like, okay, now – like I feel like I've been doing this the whole time. And therefore, if I see someone slacking, oh, I'm going to let them have it. And oh, so, really? Like, you know, not bullying but more of a – kind of bullying, kind of like – like, what's wrong with you? Why are you not doing this? What, almost like, like, oh, I've been like this the whole time. I'm perfect and you're not. Mm-hmm. And I experienced the same thing. Like when I was in, in college, I had a roommate my first year 
uh, soon. <laughs> and we were, you know, we were, we would work out together. We would do things. And, you know, Shun got in this mode where he was like ultra disciplined and he would practice his guitar every day and, and all these things. And then he'd see me slacking a bit and he would get, you know, like you could see him trying to like um, maybe encourage me, but instead it was sort of a guilt, like shaming me. And so, and I could relate later when I would do the same, same things to someone else. And I wonder if there was this factor where he started feeling like, look, I've survived cancer. I've done all these things. What's the wrong with you? You better do this. You better, you know, maybe and kind yeah. of the self-righteousness. 2015, they made a movie about him called The Program Biopic or Biopic, if you will. Starring Ben Foster. Do you know what other movies he's been in? Oh, yeah. Ben Foster. I love him. He was in uh, Alpha, Alpha Dog. Okay. And he was a, a great character in that. Um, he's also been like in some war movie, I think, or something. But yeah. What else he's been in. The movies that I like that I could think of, he was in, he was in X-Men. He was Angel. Oh, right. Yeah. He was in 310 to Yuma. He was, which I love the beginning. The ending I thought was silly. Uh, Hell or High Water. That's a big movie for him. Mm. Did you ever see that? No. Him and um, Chris Pine. Oh wait, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're driving around in the... Jeff Bridges. Yeah, yes, I did yeah. see that. That was great. And Leave No Trace, which I don't think you've seen. It came out last year. Him and his daughter live in the woods outside Portland, mm. and CPS gets involved. It's really sad. He's mm. a war vet in that one. Okay. Uh, Twenty eighteen. Lots of lawsuits over the years. He loses millions upon millions of dollars. 2019, today, uh, he seems to bounce back from it all. Uh, he's interviewed a lot. He, uh, you know, like when I thought when, when I thought about doing this episode, I thought, well, Lance Armstrong must be obscure now. He must be pushed out of society, Man. pushed out of the media. But from what I can tell, like everyone's treating him like as if it never happened. Hmm. Uh, not that I think he ne- they necessarily should because, I don't know, but because it's not like he raped kids or right. drugged people or anything like that. He, um, well, he did bully people, which maybe he should be held more accountable for that. But, but he did come forward and admit it. So yeah. whatever. But anyway, on for example, I, there's this new episode on Ar- Architectural Digest in which they uh, highlight his Aspen house. You know, what are the it's just a show where they, they go into rich people's homes. Oh, okay. Like cribs or something. Yeah. And lifestyles of the rich and famous. Exactly. So he's on a lot of things. Like, did you know he has a podcast? No. It's called The Forward Podcast. What? He interviews people like Sammy Hagar, Charles Barkley, etc. Oh, so he's like doing great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interview with him. I'm well aware my presence is not an easy topic. And so I encourage people if they want to give me a high five, great. If you want to shoot me, if you want to shoot me the bird, that's okay too. I'm a big boy. I made the bed. I get to sleep in it. Mm. Do we respect that? I mean, yeah. You know, first of all, like the guy was a top tier athlete, like I said, with or without the performance drugs. Fine. Now with the performance drugs, he was definitely violating the rules and stuff like that. The big problem, as I said, is that he lied and lied and incriminated and bullied the others and stuff like that. Now, he was found guilty. He came out. He said, yes, he did it, all these things. And he's basically not now still trying to make excuses or deny it. Fine. He, he raised more money for charity than anyone else, probably. And But the bullying. Yeah, well, I don't know if he apologized to them. He didn't. 
he, you know, he didn't bully me, let's say, right? So I, that might be between him and them. Yeah. I don't know how much I can, I don't have enough information to keep like recriminating him over that stuff. All right. So people often want us to comment on diagnosis and people are diagnosing him online all the time. And I just want to be clear, no one can diagnose him without a proper evaluation. Uh, psychopathy, narcissistic personality disorder in particular, require uh, many hours of assessment by someone who knows what they're doing, which is a very rare sort of thing. Right. So there's really no way to know. Uh, but as a point of education, which um, I think is actually helpful for people to know, because people are throwing around these terms like they know what they're talking about, I thought we would go over uh, diagnosing the very little we know from the internet, yeah. which should be taken with a uh, planet-sized grain of salt. So Clearly, it's agoraphobia. So is he a psychopath? So uh, let's go one, one by one here. Um, actually, my notes are all kind of messed up, so I'm going to change something. Uh, okay. So we're going to use the hair measure, which is the 20-item measure. Uh, number one, psycholog- pathological lying. Is he a pathological liar, Umberto? I mean, he was lying to everyone's face extremely aggressively for many years. Yeah. I don't know if he lies outside of that context, if he's still lying, but there was a lot of evidence. So he was absolutely lying, but it's within a certain context. Mm-hmm. Everyone using performance-enhancing drugs is lying about yeah. it. Everyone who cheats is lying. Everyone who uh, wears spanks and doesn't want to admit it is lying. You know, there's a lot of lying that people do. It's not pathological lying. Like you said, do we know if he was lying in other contexts? Sure. Pa- pathological, psychopathic lying, they lie all the time. Sure. Not literally, but they'll lie about... Um, little things yeah. like you you walk into a room and you notice that the dishes have been emptied out of the dishwasher yeah. and you're like who emptied the dishes and the pathological liar would be like I don't know it wasn't me yeah. because it's this knee jerk reaction it, it, it's not a functional uh, lying and what we call instrumental lying which is actually somewhat logical right. it's, it's if, the kind of lies that would get you in trouble for tweets that have lies that you didn't even have to lie about. Exactly. Okay. That's a good example. So, so no, we don't have exactly that evidence. We have evidence that he, we have potentially evidence he lied. aggressively and definitely for a long time lied about that subject. Just that subject. Yeah. We don't now maybe he did, but there's no evidence on the internet. We don't uh, know of it. Two, glib and superficial charm. I actually haven't seen that from, like that's the one thing is I don't remember. He doesn't seem that way. He no. seems more like serious and like he'll answer a question. He was yeah. never like, "Hey, what's up? So glad to be here today." You know, right? Ted Bundy is a right. classic example. Right. Three, cunning and manipulative. Sounds like he was. He was at least cunning and manipulative because he ran apparently the biggest, most sophisticated, blah 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 blah, and manipulated and bullied a whole bunch of people. I mean, come on, what are you, how are you going to define it otherwise? It's just not classic. There's a so we went over this previous is that in order to compete in a in a sport that 
he wanted to compete in, he had to play the game just Mm-mm. like everyone else did. I don't buy it because all his other teammates apparently didn't reach these levels of manipulativeness and con- connivingness. True. So, so a little bit, yeah. but nothing compared to Ted Bundy. Okay. Okay, but we can rate him at some level, which we will at the end. Okay. Uh, for grandiose sense of self. Yes. Right. Maybe it's hard to know exactly, but that's a definite maybe right there. Uh, five need for stimulation. Yes. Hard to say, maybe. This is another one we ran into, but like, if... it's Because again, we just don't have the data. Do we have some data that he was... Well, again, need for stimulation is like drug use, sexual Mm. behaviors, uh, you know, wanting to... Uh, jump off of a thing and hurt yourself. Like, Wanting to endure agonizing pain for so, weeks on end. But again, that's being a cyclist. We're, we're talking about a culture mm-hmm. of context. It's like looking at someone and saying, oh, well, that guy killed five people. He's a psychopath. Well, what if he was a soldier in World War II? Mm-hmm. You have to look at the context. Uh, the context of cycling, that's what everyone does. So are they all psychopaths in, in, in recycling? Now, are people who have a need for stimulation more likely to become one of those kinds of sporto people? Maybe. I don't know. Oh, that's fair. I, I, I kind of look at it like these are different categories. And uh, you're not just talking about, well, people that are in the cycling world cycle a lot. We're talking about like the elite of the elite, right, that go above and beyond. And so to some extent, these people, probably all of like the top 100 or some of them, have a need for massive amounts of that input into But that's not necessarily psychopathic input. No, it's not necessarily, but that it is point, one yeah. variable. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we'd have to see it in other contexts. Like, yeah. like when we look at um, cunning and manipulative, for example, yeah. we see it not only in his, um, uh, you know, press lying, but also in behind-the-scenes reports. That's always the key. Like if we had a, a description from... Donald Trump's wife about what Donald Trump is like when it's just the two of them behind closed doors, then we'd have a better idea as to like what's really going on there. Anyway, number six, callous callousness and lack of empathy. It sounds like, again, just from the reports, uh, yeah, there's some amount of that. A little bit for sure. He threatens people. He threatens to kill people. He threatens the wives of the people. Right. And he didn't really care that he was, Calling out people as liars and threatening them publicly right. when he knew he was guilty. Right. There's a if you compare him to other people who denied right. performance enhancing drugs, he was particularly ruthless, not only in front of the camera but but particularly behind the scenes. Right. Uh, seven lack of remorse or guilt. So that's an interesting one because. Uh, from what you said about, I didn't really watch the Oprah interview, but what you read and the way it feels and the way I remember things, it's more of a fine. Yeah, this is me. I'm just flawed. Rather than, oh my God, I'm so, so sorry. You know, like this kind of thing. Yeah. So on the spectrum of things, I would put him at a, a level of some remorse and some guilt, but not no guilt and not the sort of guilt I would have if if I had done such a thing and had to admit it on national TV. Right. And there's the difference between, ah, oh, man, I really screwed up things, didn't I? I had all those wins. and I. There's a difference between that and, oh, my God, 
I've defrauded so many people. Now we don't and know. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, we don't know what he did behind the scenes. Right. Fair but enough. on but on Oprah, he absolutely came forward. Again, if he was more down the spectrum of psychopathy, mm-hmm. in all likelihood, he would just double down and say, "No, they're all lying." And in fact. The Olympic Committee, who found me to yeah, yeah, yeah. be using for performance-enhancing drugs, there it's all rigged. Right, it fake news. Yeah, absolutely. They, they would they, find some sort of like yeah. They would find some sort of like professor, maybe an ex-editor of Psychology Today, to come out and say that Google and Apple and Facebook and everyone actually rigged millions and millions of votes towards Hillary Clinton. Right, something like that. So, uh, and when he talks on the Oprah. Uh, um, show in the interview, uh, he comes across like someone who's genuinely uh, remorseful about about what he did. Okay. Uh, now, while he was bullying, he didn't seem to be remorseful. That, you know, to, to bully someone, to threaten, to write in an email, again, allegedly, yeah. that I'm going to put a bullet in your head, that takes a special sort of lack of remorse, right? Now, you could argue that he was so narcissistically uh, triggered that it very much overrode his robust yeah. compassion for for other people. Hard to know. You'd have to know more about him. Sure. Number eight, failure to accept responsibility. It's a tough one. I mean, he kind of did. Right. So it's hard to say. Like I was talking about before, all doping athletes deny the use of this sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Yeah. But, and, but again, the bullying and then the continual denial. Um, and but he did, you know, accept responsibility on Oprah. It's hard to say. It's just some of the comments. The reason I was again, I didn't see the Oprah one, so you you actually, I, you know, I'll believe you. It's just that some of the other comments, like, hey, if I if I see someone and they want to high five me, that's great. If they want to give me the finger, I, I get it. I I made my bed. I'm going to sleep in it. And again, just that one comment is not enough for anything. But it, I get this feeling of like, hey, man. That's just me. No, I don't think that's his attitude. Okay. I, I, it, the way he comes across, he's not like, "Hey, man, that's that's just that's not okay. that's not my read of it." He's he's saying, and I think it's accurate because he's not Bill Cosby, right? He's not O.J. Simpson, right? He 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 used performance enhancing drugs, which yeah. they all did. Maybe and lied and bullied, about and it. And, yeah. and lied, which which they all do. Yeah. The bullying was not cool, and he admitted he's like, yeah, that was that was wrong. Yeah. Um, here's why I did it, but yeah, I mean, I was just so focused on yeah. winning that I did it, but yeah, that was wrong. And so I think he's a with that statement, he's appropriate. Like, yeah, hey, man, if you want to high five me for raising half a billion dollars <laughs> and competing at such a high level with other people who were, according to him, using performance-enhancing drugs, right. um, then, yeah, you can high-five me. If you want to give me the finger uh, for letting everyone down and lying to everyone and and bullying people, then, yeah, that makes sense right. to me. I, I deserve that, you know. I, I think it's pretty... I, I'm not saying I respect him <laughs> because he's a dick who bullied people. Sure. But on the scale of the people that we attack online, I think he's, you know, one of the better ones. He's one of the better dicks of, of the people <laughs> online. You know what I mean? Number nine, shallow emotional response. Again, I, that's what I'm reading into some of the comments, but it sounds like from your perspective, no. Well, there's, there's no clear evidence yeah. of it anyway. Ten, parasitic lifestyle. No. No. Eleven, poor behavioral controls. No. 
Yeah, maybe the bullying. Maybe the bullying. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, But not in general, otherwise. I guess, yeah, what the way I was thinking about it was the amount of discipline he had to have. Yeah. To do what he did. So a typical psychopathic poor behavioral control would be um, just someone gets, someone bothers you and you just destroy your life trying to uh, get back at them, you know? Right. Um, Anyway. I just don't think that you can be that organized and that focused and that committed all those years and have like typical behavior self Yeah. Right. 12, irresponsibility. No. No. 13, impulsivity. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> again, maybe. Again, the bullying is the only thing we have. Yeah. Again, if you're an impulsive-ish person, right. it's going to be hard to train uh, for things like That's that. That's fair. Uh, 14, Many short-term marital relationships. Uh, he had a few, but like famous people are generally not only famous accosted people, all the time by uh, lots of people. <laughs> yeah, oh. what I mean, yeah, absolutely. What I mean is that it is the least unusual thing in the world for famous people to get married and divorced a few times, right? And for anyone, yeah, to be clear, uh, fifteen, uh, yeah, fifteen sexual promiscuity. Not that we know of. Not that we know. Of. 16, early behavioral problems. He says he had some. But not on the level that I think we would normally see in a psychopath, like with Jeffrey Dahmer, for sure. example. Uh, 17, lack of realistic long-term goals. No. No. 18, juvenile delinquency. Not that we know of. 19, revocation of conditional release, which yes, is absolutely. for prison people. 20, criminal versatility. Uh, no, not the way that you've explained it to me before. Not at all. Although, although, okay, fair enough. Because we've had this discussion, though. One of the issues that I've taken in the past is that it and or you give preference to blue-collar criminal versatility, whereas, no. well, it seemed that way. Because, like, the well, amount of criminal it, versatility it takes to run the most organized, highest sophisticated ring it's of not, performance-enhancing drugs. It's, it's not an issue of charges, or or counts, you know. Sure. It's an issue of the where it comes from. So we're not looking at the behavior uh, with psychopathy. It's a personality disorder. So you're looking at like how does it happen? Yeah. So why did he use performance enhancing drugs? Not because he was a psychopath, but because sure. everyone does it to compete. So and how do you sustain that that practice? Well, you gotta you gotta commit a lot of crime, so to speak. Um, I don't actually don't even know if they're crimes, but, but anyway, so criminal versatility in a psychopath is you shoplift because you want things and you feel entitled and you don't have any remorse and you don't care. You also punch people in the face that don't, that you don't, that you don't like. You also, uh, write bad checks because that, because you just want to get away with that and you, and you're impulsive and you can't, you don't have any long-term goals. You also steal from the till at the restaurant that you got a job at that day. You also try to, um, uh, you, you steal from your neighbors because you see, oh, you know, he's, he's got a bike in the backyard. That's criminal versus versatility. Okay. Now you could call those blue collar. So, so let me put it into a white collar situation. You are a, you're a super rich CEO dude. Of Enron. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, so you and you you take things home from work, like your computer, or you go into the room, the office next door, and you take someone's uh, 
like uh, Mickey Mantle signed baseball. You also like to scam people online, like the fire festival guy. Yeah. Like that's criminal versatility, I, where it's like the 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 amount of it just it it, it you just get this sense like it, they're always trying to get something going, and they just have this thought in their head like ooh. I could scam people in that way. And that's what I, that's why I feel like, and maybe and you've clarified it because when I think of like the Enron few guys at the top, um, if that's not criminal versatility, I just don't get it because like they, they were constantly scamming to see how can we basically squeeze fake money out of the system? Well, irrelevant if people die in outages, irrelevant if, you know, like, well, I don't know. I haven't looked into them, so I can't, Speak but it was stuff that. like like they were they they set up whole whole divisions that were like. But what we're talking about is Lance Armstrong. So, no, I know, I know, I know. So I just his all his crimes from fair, what fair you and I know about. There could be billions more that we don't, and that other people do. But all of Lance Armstrong's crimes were centered around this one thing. Sure. So it's that's not versatility. Uh, okay. So on, on a spec. So we've started to rate everyone out of ten. <laughs> I can't remember where. I think like. R. Kelly was like a like a three or four or something. I can't remember. But now again, this is not actually a scientific <laughs> right. diagnosis. I, as an ethical clinician, cannot diagnose from afar. This is a ridiculous practice. Um, it's a silly thing. What we're what we're quote unquote diagnosing is what is on the internet that I had time enough to actually sure. find. So it's a totally dumb thing. But if we were to put Lance Armstrong. Uh, character that we could see on the internet on the spectrum from one to 10 with 10 being Ted Bundy and one being, uh, you know, mother Teresa, but I heard she was actually kind of an interesting <laughs> person. Uh, what number would we put him at? I would probably put him at a three as well. Right. Uh, for the threats, uh, yeah. mainly, honestly, to, to be able to threaten people with, with their lives and to threaten your, teammates wives i mean imagine and these are not necessarily impulsive things some of them were but some of them were planned out like he he was going to get you that is clear you have to you you have to not have some deeper robust sense of remorse yeah that will even though you have the impulse and you want to do it uh you say or you do it once and you're like oh my god that i feel I, i i i gotta Something's got to happen here. I got to reel this back. He did this for years, systematically to many people. Now, it wasn't on the level of what other bullies are going to do, but it was definitely in that direction. And to me, that clearly puts him on the spectrum. But when we think, when we look at all the 20 (laughs) items of psychopathy, we're talking vast majority of them, he doesn't, on the internet anyway, endorse any of this. The dark tetrad, we have the four traits of psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sadism, because I get questions about this sometimes. All these traits correlate with each other. We call it the dark tetrad. Uh, We already talked about psychopathy. What about narcissism? Yeah, a bit. So probably on the spectrum a little bit. Again, a need to be admired as a defense against the attachment insecurity and the ins- just general insecurity he has a kid Machiavellian absolutely Machiavellian this is what I've been looking for I think this is the one I'm looking for this is the one that I want to put a lot of people that are not dysfunctional psychopaths but have essentially they are organized unempathizing beasts you know and I think in this case he's not extreme but he definitely was a schemer in this field. 
you know? Yeah. To, I mean, again, you know, just... I, it's hard for me to know because I wish I was there, obviously. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, to witnessing it because, it, again, you could call A-Rod and, you know, um, Conseco all these people on the spectrum of Machiavellianism as well, which I don't think is but, really that type of personality. But if they were called ringleaders and the biggest, most organized, so blah, blah, blah. That's what I'd like to see what that actually looked like. Yeah, yeah. Because if it was just, because the thing is, is there's a version of the story where 95% of the people who were in that quote unquote, you know, circle ringleader Mm -hmm. situation were all desperate to use whatever they needed to, to actually win and they were like, well, can someone take control of this process? Because we need someone to take the lead on you know, how we're going to get all these drugs or processes or whatever, how we're going to make sure we pass the test. And Lance Armstrong, being the leader of the team, actually said, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to do that. Um, or he suggested, I'll do that. So it's hard to know if it was an organization, like, you know, I'm the ringleader of this podcast, <laughs> but you wouldn't call me Machiavelli. You, know, you, you would just say... I, I'm just leading. I'm I'm a I'm 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 making plans. You so, haven't seen so, them behind the scenes. Yeah. So the uh, what I would want to see is, you know, him quietly thinking. Okay, how do I manipulate the press? How do I bully this person? How do I uh, trick that that thing? And it's a, it's sort of an obsession for him of how do I maneuver. Not only in cycling, but in all aspects of life. How do I get my wife to do what I want her to yeah. do? How do I get my kids to get, you know, that's, that's what these dark tetrad people do is you might even know people like this where they'll do things and you'll realize, whoa, you've been thinking about this. You've been, you didn't actually just come to me and say, hey, I, you know, I, I want this or, I, or this upset me or something. They they did a plan, and it's dysfunctional. That's the whole thing. This dark tetrad, it's dysfunctional. It doesn't help you. It's not like good planners, uh, you know, are the people who have Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism in this context is people who actually dysfunctionally plan defensively because they they believe if they don't, they're never going to get any of their needs met. You know, so it's it's hard to say with him. I, I, I wish mm. I knew him more. Uh, did did in, in the colloquial sense, in the broader sense, what did he possess? Uh, was he Machiavellian? Mm. Um, yeah, but not in the dark tetrad quintessential sense. So maybe we still need something else that maybe is not categorized as being outside the norm, but should be. Because, you know... He's a dick. No, yeah, what I mean is most people... And maybe it's because they don't have the opportunity, but I, most people do not are not criminals. Let's say most people are not criminals. They're, they're a, a minority of human beings are criminals, and out of that percentage of criminals, some percentage of them really don't care about other people, and they will just do anything they can. But some percentage of those are really good at it, and they are organized, and they, you know, basically have large organizations that succeed for years and years and years doing it. Well, and they. I wonder if that's within the norm of psychology or if it's there's something wrong in their head. <laughs> so th- this I'm glad you're bringing this up because a lot of lay people will email me and say things in a less sophisticated manner than that you are right now. And here's the thing. 
um, it's not even just a matter of threshold uh, because, well, it's, it's a matter of threshold, but it's not just that. So the reason why for some of you out there, you might be feeling this tension that Umberto is feeling right now where it's like, well, we clearly need to say there's something wrong with him because he did all these bad things. A lot of people do bad things. You out there have done bad things. Now, you can label it as bad things. You can say that there was a psychological component to that. You can add a label to that. Insecurity, attachment issues, um, trauma. You can use those labels. But when you're using diagnostic labels, these are well-defined in our field. And in our field, we tend to apply labels to uh, things that have significant difference from other people that are dysfunctional that are global to the person. You know, when we're talking about dark tetrad and psychopathy, we're talking about a personality. We're not talking about a behavior. Yeah. Uh, you and I have lied before. We've stolen before. Right. We've made plans against other people. We've been a dick before. Do we call ourselves, is it something global to my personhood that contributed to that? that is dysfunctional and out of the norm. No, everyone's insecure. Everyone gets hurt. Everyone uh, will lie when they're in a, mm-hmm. in a pinch or that's, everyone can lack remorse sometimes. But when we're applying these labels, we have to understand that we're talking about something you know, quite particular. And if we start applying it to everyone, then it, it loses its meaning. And, right. and the other thing is, is people don't understand the range <laughs> You know, that there's a spectrum, shall we say, of dark tetrad, and they people tend to squish the range, you know? They'll be like, like, I got an email from someone recently, uh, oh, it was, um, so this, I, I read this story in the, in the news about this police officer who was caught planting evidence in dozens of cases, uh, can you tell me why this police officer has sadistic personality disorder? And those are the, that's that misunderstanding of you're just looking at one behavior. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that behavior. The context, bad decision-making, stupid uh, pressure from their boss, uh, everyone else was doing it, that people don't like to consider what we like to do is we like, we see a bad behavior and we want to apply a diagnosis. Some kind of wiring is wrong. Something's wrong with that brain. And that is actually not only not the way we talk, but it's an, it's a very messed up way of looking at why people do the things that they do. We do the things that we do for a lot of reasons. One of which has to do with quote unquote, what's wrong with our brain. But a lot of it also has to do with context and, and, interesting sort of neutral psychological concepts like the way we're raised and uh, the amount of need we have to, to, to get into something. And so that's why it, but again, to return to the last thing and then I'll shut up is uh, we want to reserve these psychological labels for what they were intended for and what they're clearly defined as in my field. It, you know, it'd be like, physicians who walk, you know, like we walk, this is probably an easier analogy. It's like, Ooh, my arm hurts. I have broken bones. That's what it's like for me to hear. When people are like, Oh, this person lied. They're a psychopath. It's like, it's, it's, it's exactly the same as if a met a physician heard, 
I have an, a hurt on my arm. I have a broken arm. I need an amputation. <laughs> That's, it's that silly sure. to me. Right. So I definitely get that, and I'm 100% on board with you about keeping the definitions to what they're meant to be in the field. Totally. What I am noticing, the more we talk through this is, and this could be wrong, but it seems to me like the focus of the whole field is mostly on we label things as wrong, quote unquote, if they are for Not various wrong. number or, or <laughs> use a different word. Uh, okay, we label things as a diagnosis of some sort, uh, a disorder, a disorder. Generally, if they're damaging to the individual or those immediately around them. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's interesting to me is you look at someone like Putin, who is a hyper successful human being. Uh, Uber organized, very in good health. He exercises plenty. He's in good shape. He excelled in his field in the KGB, and now he runs the country, and he's probably the, the richest man in the world. But as a human, I look at it, and I'm like, that is one dangerous, outside-of-the-norm human. But he's not damaging – he's not like, you know – all these things like comp- – well, we don't know, but so, like, assumingly, so, so presumably if, he's not a um, – If there was something wrong with his personality or he had a disorder, then he wouldn't just do it in that visible political you know, context. He would do it all the time. Yeah, right. So, so my point is with, – With his spouse, with his kids, right. with his friends, with – Right. his coworkers in ways that wouldn't make any sense. Totally. So let's assume, because we don't have the evidence, let's assume that's not the case. Because in fact, he seems hyper successful as a human being. So at least we know he's not a fuck. So let's say in his regular life, he's a kind, yeah, wonderful person. To his family, stuff like that. But it's just that he, he makes decisions for that affect, say, outside of his family circle with killing people, potentially getting us to the verge of war, all these kinds of things, right? Imprisoning gays, all the things he does, right? I feel like there there is something that is outside of some bell curve for humans that that should be labeled, and it is brain-related. And I don't think we have a language for that. Uh, but it's not accurate. But why not? Because one... It's outside of the ner- norm, for sure. But and it's but damaging to society. It, it's outside the norm behaviorally. Right. And it's damaging to society. Just yeah. the, the thing is that we are in the, in the field. Well, it one, seems, in psychology, we're not interested in those kinds of things. That's be, my point. Because, it's, it, that's what I've realized now is that that's outside of the scope of what psychology seems to be interested in. Yeah. And I feel like it's a gap. Because that is, if well, anything. Well, what, let me ask you, what's the compulsion to add a psychological label to that? Why not just call him... What he, what what oh, you would call him, okay, which is okay. like, and I don't know enough about Putin, but for for right. a destructive politician, why not just call them a terrible destructive person? Right, because let's say we could fast forward to why a, do you need a psychological label? Right, so let's say we could fast forward n number of years to the point where we had labeled it. We had in fact traced back a lot of the root causes for such a person, and we could actually through you know modifications of our educations, the way that we teach people how to parent and everything avoid, reduce the percentage of people that end up being that kind of person, then it would be useful. Okay. That's my point. But we don't need a psychological label for that. We could call it a propensity for terrible politics. Well, if you want to invent a different field that's more focused on the damage to society versus the individual and those around them, that's fine. But I'm saying we need something like that. I get Okay. It'd be wonderful. Believe me, psychology would absolutely be interested in that, and, and it is. 
in that if there was a test that could somehow uh, differentiate politicians who were going to, quote unquote, harm the world. But you understand Donald Trump was elected by the United States citizens tree. (laughs) So, uh, you know, never mind about uh, Putin, but there are people out there who would say we you could trend and I'm guessing you would, too just graft Trump instead of Putin in that whole conversation? Well, actually, I, I would mostly, but I, I would have an, a, an easier time still sticking to normal psychology with Trump because he's actually been dysfunctional in so many aspects of his life. It's just he's had money to cover up the dysfunction for all of his life. But my point is, is that, but, but that you your, I mean? your wish for a label uh, that would be easily applied to uh, human beings so that we could uh, screen them out of politics, for example. Uh, We kind of already have that, essentially. Uh, We could have, like, there, someone when Trump was, say, 50 years old, could have sat down with him and actually evaluated. In fact, I think someone did. And, uh, but what kind of world would that be, right? But again, like, the reason I, I don't see Trump and Putin in the same boat is like, well, I don't, I, forget about that. But, yeah, yeah. but your spirit is psychology. Your 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 indictment on psychology is, as I'm a representative of, apparently, that there should be a, a, a psychological system of labeling things for the betterment betterment of society, particularly for CEOs and and people in power, mm-hmm. uh, politicians. We have that kind of. Uh, we don't have uh, the ability because it'd be really hard to research because of uh, people look at Trump differently, right? It's a it's a subjective thing that people do. Uh, how do you measure a good politician versus a bad politician? It's hard, you know. By by what measure? That's a that's a that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, everyone has their own sense of that, and I think there's you know good philosophy behind certain answers, but. Um, we, okay, we could do that, maybe, and then you enact that, and then you have some law that says if, say, two out of three psychologists deem you unworthy to be a politician that you're uh, barred from that sort of thing? No, 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 no. That, that's definitely not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is, first of all, not an indictment on psychology. I'm saying that neither medicine nor psychology nor sociology nor any other field has actually – studied or done any advancements in probably the single most damaging element to human history, which is these individuals that are actually not fitting the profile of a psychopath necessarily. They might have some narcissistic elements, maybe a little. They have. So it's not, but it's not in the realm of psychology. It's, it's in the realm of sociology and social psychology. Mm -hmm. So we absolutely study in various different fields, uh, akin or even within psychology, the, the very, well-documented, well-thought-over, well-written, um, hard to research, but a lot of intelligent people looking at how Hitler became, came to power, how mobs produce certain kinds mm-hmm. of things, how uh, a scared populace increases uh, yeah. conservatism, how a, uh, a group of others can be uh, targeted by a high-conflict individual and scapegoated so that scared people can feel more secure right. and, and can be blamed. This is well documented. Sure. This is well written about. This is well researched. But guess what? No one cares. 
Well, we, what, I, what I'm saying is absolutely that we know about these things, but there's certainly no mechanism. For, there's no mechanism to identify a psychopath early on that's reliable, right? Like, it's not like we could screen people with a little device and be like, oh, 60% possibility of psychopath. Like, well, you right? say that, but a little shade up from that, uh, by the time someone's 16, 17 years sure. old, uh, there are experts right. who could uh, absolutely put a percentage on the chance that this person's going right. to be consistently a psychopath for so the rest of their life. So I realize what I'm saying is completely idealistic, but imagine that we could uh, have identified enough elements about education, parenting, society, blah, blah, blah. Just like we talk about like indoctrinating people about misogyny and things like that, right? Like what I'm trying to get at is if we could prevent that brand of person that is actually highly functional but just doesn't give a fuck about others other than outside their immediate family circle. If we can minimize those people in general, not because we put them in prison, just because we change our process after having identified what are the mental things that lead you down that path, that would be extremely useful. So that's not psychology's fault. uh, No, again, I understand why you're taking it. I'm saying, as we've t- talked about this... I'm, but that's not psychology's fault. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm ultimately... I'm 100% agreeing with you. We shouldn't mislabel things, use the labels that already exist for other things, totally. Mm-hmm. I'm also not saying, hey, it's psychology's fault. I'm kind of identifying, hey, man, there's this thing that is science fiction, of course, but imagine if yeah. we could reduce the number of these people. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever thought about this before until we meandered our way here. Yeah. But in a perfect world... What would it look like with today's technology? Oh, what would it look like? It might look like um, a little you know, bit. You know, here's what it would look like. So it wouldn't be once someone's running for president. It would be at, at ground level. So, And it wouldn't be preventing them from being um, politicians. It would be like, like say, uh, someone is middle management of Microsoft. Yeah. And on one path without any kind of uh, intervention through their Machiavellianism and their uh, bullying and their lying and their psychopathy and lack of remorse, they rise to CEO and proceed to abuse everyone and use their power for bad and hurt the, hurt the world and this kind of thing. Well, once they get to power, there's so many, politics and issues with, well, you're just saying that because you don't like my decisions. So it would start lower where they are, you know, at rank three out of 15 and someone comes in and and tests everyone, perhaps even to some extent, you know, confidentially and identifies certain individuals who have a propensity to this and actually goes to that individual and says, by the way, just want to let you know you have this thing, and um, if you don't uh, modify it or work on it, it's you're going to hurt a lot of people. Most psychopaths actually, unless you're a sadist, which is kind of rare, mm-hmm. they actually aren't super interested in harming other people. They just don't care. Yeah. If they if and if you're in their way, then they'll hurt you. So they so if if they actually know they're a psychopath, many psychopaths actually even few psychopaths actually know they're a psychopath. So they know they actually don't care about other people's feelings. But intellectually, they're like, well, I, but I don't want to harm other people. One, because it 
lessens my chance of success in the world. Yeah. But also because why? Like from what I understand, it's a bad thing to hurt other people, yeah. you know. And so uh, you can actually work with them and say, you know, let, let's try to work on this. And you could, and then that that assessor will confidentially know that person and then watch them and see yeah. how they do. And then if they actually start to enact uh, harm around them, then they're like, look, dude, you're taking this to another level. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start, uh, I have the power to start actually notifying people around you and coaching them on how to react to you. Because what, what you just did right there was bullying, it was victimizing, and that person doesn't feel like they have the power to fight back. And you kind of knew that. So you're, let's work on this, okay? You know, mm-hmm. I have the power over you. <laughs> right. This is like, you know, uh, what oligarchy, so it would be a psychogarchy. Psychogarchy. <laughs> um, and, uh, of course, this wouldn't work, but uh, in terms of rights and the way our society works, but if you had good actors, good yeah. psychologists, and a system that supported that, um, I could absolutely see that working. Right. Well, in one simple example, for, exa- for example, is uh, so, y- you know, we have a system of capitalism that's not just capitalism as in you have a good idea, you try to market it. If people like it, they'll buy it, you'll make money. There, it's got this super layer, in fact, several super layers that are not really a free market concept. It's we're going to make fictitious bets on things and those fictitious bets are going to make way more money for people than the actual products, than the actual underlying products. And we're going to make it even harder because here's what we're going to say. When you have a company and it's publicly traded, you can't just do well that year because you sold the same amount of great products you did last year and your customers are happy. That's a failing company. In fact, you can't just make more money than last year. That's a failing company. You have to beat the projections of how much more money you were going to make than last year. And when you set up a system like that, it's going to attract that element. And that element is going to do very well in that Not only attract, but it privileges that element. It does, yeah. Right. So if you are a uh, a stockholder, do you want the nice person who has remorse? No. You want the person who is going to stomp on everyone Mm -hmm. to make money for the business because you don't see all that harm they do. All you see is your stock go up. So that's a problem in our society. So again, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, thinkers have known about this for decades, if not centuries, and have tried to get society to change on this. And guess what? Fair enough. So I I think that that is... That is true that there are some fields that try actively to modify the way society works. And they have some successes and a lot of failures because it's so hard. And Well, it's only hard because we make it hard to ourselves. We pay attention to things that we pay attention to. If society paid attention to this kind of thinking, then we would vote for people who – and we would pressure our – that our politicians are just doing what we want them to do, and Absolutely. we could change society if we want. It's wanted just to. a moving wheel that we're a part of. So it's like, it's hard to have a meta analysis when you're in the middle of the thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. Okay, fair enough. But we pay attention to money, and boy, are we good at that. Uh, we don't pay attention to the environment. We're not very good at that. We don't pay attention to psych- privileging psychopaths. Uh, we don't. We we could. We could do it. I believe we can. We've changed society. Most Americans uh, support gay marriage. That was not true 30 years ago. We can change a lot of things. Um, final word on Lance, Lance Armstrong. 
uh, you know, like a lot of athletes and people who excel in their field, he was very inspirational. And I think that there's some things that he's done irrelevant of his lying and the bullying that, you know, have been tremendously helpful, like half a billion dollars raised for, for various things. And, you know, a lot of people drew inspiration from him anyways. And I'm sure that there were a lot of interactions where he personally touched people in, in a positive way. At the same time, there's no excuse for the bullying. Uh, it feels like he really affected some families. So that I hope he tried to make amends with personally with those folks. Um, I think that, like you said, it's not on the same level as someone who's murdered people or raped women for decades and things like that. Nowhere near. So at this point, you know, maybe all the best for him. When I started the deep dive, I barely knew anything about him. I was kind of even somewhat unaware of the live strong thing. I remember the yellow bracelets, but it was really not a part of my circle. So I learned so much about him. And uh, on one level, I uh, respect him a lot, actually. Uh, Not on the level of, say, I don't know, John Stewart or uh, Bernie Sanders or um, you know Barack Obama. <laughs> try to get out of politics. Um, right. Irvin Yalom. Uh, you know these people. I uh, respect. Uh, I respect him as a person who works really hard in, in sports. I respect him as someone who bounced back from a pretty difficult PR problem. Uh, I respect him for doing all the charity work. I mean, he, he didn't have to do all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I respect him for that. He seems like a likable guy on the surface anyway. Uh, hearing about the bullying, I've been bullied in the workplace. It's mm-hmm. traumatic. It's ho- It's awful. And um, I've when, when I get upset and when I get hurt and when I get angry, uh, I might be terse and short with someone, but I, I'm never going to cross all the lines right. that, that Lance Armstrong had, had to cross. And to me, that is a a deep, immoral uh, legacy and history that he perpetrated over many years, um, allegedly, according to a number of people, that um, he's responsible for, and there's no excuse. Uh, Yeah, he he grew up in a difficult situation, doesn't excuse it. A lot of people grow up in difficult situations and, and don't do that. He was a high competitor, and he wanted to win. It's great. A lot of people go through that and still they don't treat other people horribly. I, I think that's a, a, a massive black mark on, on his life. And from the little I know of the press, I don't think he's done enough to correct for that. Maybe in the future he will. Maybe he'll come to terms with that and actually um, sit down with some of his accusers on his podcast, for example, and just really uh, take ownership for what he did and, and deeply apologize. If he did that, then I'd say, okay, that's a that's you know big respect from that. Again, you still did it, and it, it that can't be changed. But lead the charge, trying to change the culture of the sports and the way that things are done. Yeah, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>